Do you know the Latin root of passion is to suffer? And so often people go, I'm so passionate, I'm so passionate. And I'm like, oh, are you willing to suffer the most in your life for that thing that you're talking that you're passionate about? I mean, it doesn't need to be the thing that you do for your full-time job. What we're passionate about can be fulfilled the most through the thing that we do outside of work because we have the time and space and maybe financial freedom from our full-time job. But... I think when you are willing to suffer for something and you connect it for something that's for me outside of myself to a bit, that suffering doesn't seem so great anymore. I really do gain great perspective of it. I also choose when to suffer. Like I don't suffer. Like It's why I don't always race anymore because I know what it's like and how hard it is and I want to make my footsteps count. And on the idea that maybe we don't have that many footsteps, what is the best use of my footsteps? That's Samantha Gash, this week on the Retroll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome or welcome back to my podcast, the show where each week I roll up my sleeves and get deep even emotional at times. It happens. There have been tears on this show with some of the most inspiring thought leaders and positive change makers I can find all across the planet. People across all categories of health and wellness, fitness, nutrition, medicine, entrepreneurship, social activism, music, entertainment, the whole deal. So thank you for dropping by. Uh, Today's guest is the inspiring, powerful, super cool Samantha Gash, who is an extraordinary ultra athlete, a role model, a philanthropist, a humanitarian. Uh, What can I say? Samantha is amazing. Uh, Check this out. In 2010, with close to no legit running experience, Samantha became the first female and the youngest person ever to run the Ford Desert Race Series Grand Slam, which is one of the world's toughest endurance challenges. It requires competitors to run four 250-kilometer ultra marathons across the driest desert in Chile, the windiest desert in China, the hottest desert in the Sahara, and the coldest desert in Antarctica, uh, basically the most inhospitable places on earth, and you got to do it all in one calendar year. Uh, You might recall Samantha's name coming up in my podcast with Jennifer Steinman way, way back. That was March of 2015, RRP 133. Jennifer is the filmmaker behind the uh, Desert Runners documentary, which profiled four people over the course of a year as they tackled this crazy four deserts challenge. And Samantha is one of the featured athletes in that amazing movie, which you should definitely see if you haven't already. In any event, in the aftermath of her 2010 four deserts accomplishment, Samantha went on to run a 222 kilometer nonstop uh, adventure across the Himalayas at 6,000 meters above sea level. Uh, And that event had only been completed previously by one man. And that experience being in the Himalayas, it it really triggered in her a deep desire to, um, from that point forward, leverage her running for humanitarian causes. So her next big run uh, was a 379-kilometer nonstop trek across Australia's Simpson Desert. She used that to raise over $32,000 for Save the Children Australia. And then she went on to co-organize a fundraising community running event on behalf of podcast favorite Taria Pitt. You remember her from podcast number 287 and Kate Sanderson, who were both victims of the Kimberly ultramarathon bushfire. That was the race 
um, that uh, burned Taria and Samantha, ironically, also was competing in that race. And that event raised over $40,000 to support um, both Taria and Kate's continuing rehabilitation, which is amazing. And then in September of 2014, Samantha ran an average of 61 kilometers for 32 days in a row across South Africa's Freedom Trail, raising $55,000 on behalf of Save the Children uh, to support a holistic initiative that increased access to feminine hygiene products and provide education around the importance of attending school. And most recently, Samantha teamed up with World Vision to run 3,253 kilometers across India. It was a 76-day expedition from the west side of the country to the east, which ultimately raised over $150,000 to fund six education-focused programs. So it's insane, all of it, extraordinary. And you're gonna hear the whole thing, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me 
I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, so this is a super awesome conversation. It's a conversation about Samantha's journey from a traditional non-athlete practicing lawyer uh, and then how she became this inspiring ultra-athlete humanitarian that she is today. Uh, we track all her crazy runs, the trials, the challenges, especially her recent traverse across India and how she trains, how she competes, how she prepares mentally. We talk about the hows and whys of her strong call to service, that pull to leverage her talents for humanitarian efforts. But I think the core theme of this conversation is the relationship between suffering and feeling alive, the importance of challenging yourself and the magic that occurs when you have the willingness to step outside your comfort zone and leap through fear into that abyss, into the unknown. Uh, Samantha's super cool. It was an absolute delight to hang out with her and her boyfriend, Mark Wales, who came along for the ride. Mark is a badass Australian special ops commander. Uh, she met him when they were both contestants on Survivor, the Australian version of Survivor. And he was cool. I was a little intimidated by him, but he was cool. All right, enough. 
Let's talk to her. Give it up for Samantha Gash. Awesome to have you here, Samantha. Thank you for making the trek up to uh, up to the house, to the Container Studio, to do the podcast. It's lovely to meet you. Yeah, it's so great to meet you. Been waiting to meet you for a while, so it's awesome. I know it's um, your name is constantly coming up, uh, and it took a little jockeying and some persistence and you've been pinging me um pretty consistently so i appreciate that and i'm just i'm thrilled to talk to you there's so many areas to discuss so many points of uh interesting intersection and uh i'm just i'm stoked to meet you you're a big hero of mine and we're on facebook live i should say that on the podcast right now we are doing a first ever facebook live broadcast of the podcast i'd like to make this a regular habit um, so check it out on my Facebook page and leave a comment and let me know uh, if you enjoyed this or what you would like to see in the future. But in any event, let's just dig into it. I think the first thing that I want to just explore with you, I think a, a great way to kind of um, just launch right into this, I want to hear about India. Like mm. You ran all the way across India, west to east, right? Unbelievable. I mean, it was the hardest thing that I've ever had to prepare for and definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to, you know, endure um, mm-hmm. along the way. It was, um, for those who don't know, uh, in 2011, I went out to India to do a 222-kilometer nonstop run between the two highest motor oil passes uh, in the world. It's a race called the Ultra the High, and I really I did have some experience with ultramarathon running, Oh, just a little bit. But I mean, I had some experience, but in a really short, condensed period of time. And it was like a baptism of fire going out to India to do 222Ks at a race that peaked at 20,000 feet. So the the run across India began with a formal structured race. No, the idea for India began with... When you did that race. Yeah, so that was 2011. Okay. So, and I think the way to kind of talk about India is like, why did I... It it was a pivotal point for me doing this race in 2011. Um, I was doing it purely for myself. I was just wanting to see what was my own, you know, personal, physical and mental um, capabilities. And I realized that I was in way over my head. And I got to the second mountain pass of that race and I just said, I was hypothermic. I had brought six mates over from Australia and the US and they were all there for me. And I just thought, if I can mobilize their support to help me in this moment for myself, imagine what I could do if I was trying to do it for something that was for a slightly more worthy Mm -hmm. cause. Mm -hmm. And so on that mountain pass, I just said, never again am I going to push myself so, so incredibly hard unless it's for something outside of myself. So fast forward, you know, six years or six whatever. Years. It took. But that was the kernel was, of the idea. That was the birth of the yeah, idea. Yeah, it was the birth of the idea. And I, I traveled through India a little bit afterwards. And I um, had a friend who I was talking about what would it be like to kind of go to do a traverse from south to north. And he's like, no, don't go south to north. It's been explored quite a bit, either on car and a bit on foot. He's like, go west to east. Think um, desert to mountains. Mm-hmm. And I love, uh, I suppose, trail running for like the extremes and landscape and geography and climate that it can take us to. And so west to east sounded really appealing to me. And um, nobody had ever done that before. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe they hadn't. It's just not recorded. But uh-huh. from my understanding, no one had done that before. And then it kind of evolved over the years. And it was after I did a run across South, South Africa that I thought, I think I'm now ready to attempt the beast which is 
putting, you know, the pieces of the puzzle together to see if this India run is actually possible. So I can't imagine the logistics of trying to pull that off. I mean, it must have taken multiple years just to organize it. It took two years of, I I guess, sole focus um, to kind of work out what would the run look like? Um, What kind of logistical support did I even need? What support could I get in country? What would I require from, you know, the networks that I had in Australia or the US. Um, and then why was I going to do this? Why was I going to be, you know, an Australian girl running from the west to the east of India? What was that for? The purpose. What was the purpose? And so how did you like sort of zero in on what, what that would be? Over the last five years, my kind of purpose has been exploring the barriers to quality education for children around the world. And so with and why, that- why did you, why that? Like, why is that of personal meaning to you? Um, I think it came out of, it came out of Sahara quite a bit. Uh, and I'm sure we might explore. We're, yeah, we'll definitely yeah, get into we'll, that. We'll, but I guess I think education is the breaking point to break cycle of poverty, um, to change someone's paradigm from having very limited opportunities to seeing the potential for future opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so I think if a child has access to education, their life can change, not just for them, but also for their families and the communities around them. So I think it's a really solid starting point. And what is the way in to actually redressing that in a meaningful way? Well, for me, I don't think it's building schools. And I think a lot of people think, a child can't get access to school, let's go and build a school. But the problem is across the globe, there's so many barriers to why a child can't even enter into that school ground. And in a country like India, that barrier changes all the way across the country based on culture, uh, the landscape of the country they're living in, the temperature, um, the language that they speak, um, whether they're in a patriarchal part of the country or whether it's matrilineal. So there's all different types of reasons why a child can't go to school, which therefore I think the solution needs to be quite specific to that area. Even access to water. I had, I had Scott Harrison from charity water on the podcast and he was, it was fascinating how he was explaining that, you know, in these areas in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly where there really just isn't, you know, access to quality water, it's the women that have to make that trek and that is prohibitive to them attending school, right? Definitely. And even things like children not knowing that they should wash their hands after going to the toilet. Um, you think of the link effect of that. A child doesn't wash their hands before they go to the toilet. They eat food. They get sick. They get diarrhea. I'm sorry, they get diarrhea. They get sick. And then they might have to walk 6Ks one way to get to school. It's 45 degrees Celsius, so 90 mm-hmm. plus Fahrenheit. They're unwell from the simple thing of not being able to wash their hands. So the chain effect of things that can make a huge difference in these communities to get that child to school, sometimes people find it so overwhelming, um, the issue of you know how can we help a child in um, some poverty-stricken areas of India get to school, but it's small stuff like teach children how to wash their hands, um, show mothers how to plant sustainable um, ingredients that they can uh, grow during the different cycles of the season, which can actually be nutritious for their families, um, which is also empowering because they get to look after their families. Right. And I would imagine you saw quite a bit of this, you know, dearth as you were traversing the four deserts, right? I mean, you're running through these, you know, tiny communities across these, you know, sort of uh, you know, areas that are quite impoverished. Yeah, I mean, I think I did have access to some kind of community connection through doing the four deserts, 
but um, for the most part, you are in this isolated world of the run, of the race. And I think the race is different than um, an, an expedition across India where the focus is not so much on the kilometers and how fast you do it. It's about what are your observations as you're doing that traverse. Mm-hmm. And the engagement with the communities that you're passing through, right? Like I know mm. you made stops along the way. And, and of, I know. guess that was the hardest part of the entire project. I mean, if I just had to run, it would be very, very hard. And I don't think I would have lasted that long because the motivation yeah. might not be there. <laughs> From like 50K right into like giving a talk at some school or something like that, yeah, right? But the project was to visit 18 different um, programs and communities at World Vision support across the country. And when I say 18, within each of those visits, I might have visited four different programs, whether it was a, a family in a mud hut, um, going walking through the slums and, and meeting a shopkeeper, going into a school, and all of those could have been separated by, you know, 50, 60 kilometres that right. we would have had to travel. So um, that those were the hardest parts of the journey, but the most rewarding parts of it for the understanding. So you have this idea of, of tackling uh, the hurdles that impair younger people getting access to education but you have to find a partner right like so why world vision like why you know what how did you sort of line up the right people Mm. and the right organizations that you could partner with on this well, you and I are both lawyers, so we definitely do our due I diligence. Forget, yeah, yeah I call ahead. it laps, and I try and say it's very, very lapsed. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I had, I mean, like any project partner that I ever look for, I do a lot of research into the programs that they do, um, the, the success or um, how how sustainable that they are for the long term, um, whether they actually are a, the World Vision kind of motto is it's a hand up, not a hand out. And I've worked with a lot of not-for-profits over my time and I just felt that the blueprint that um, World Vision had in India was something that I could work with. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be a very collaborative process. I mean, I think my project was a bit of a red flag. I mean, imagine going to a charity and going, I want to do something that's potentially dangerous and risky and maybe going to give you a lot of negative media attention. I'm going to run across the country. I'm I'm going to run on roads which trucks go past and i want to try and connect the this run to access to education why would that get negative a negative reaction though i mean it's dangerous it's it's if something were to happen oh, and, yeah. and something could definitely but also happened. expensive right like this but is a major or you know mm, thing to pull off but they there was different partners funding different things uh-huh. so and i get that question all the time like how does that, this all get funded um, partially it gets funded by me, partially um, World Vision committed to the content creation part. So we had a videographer out with us and that was funded by World Vision because they were using that content. Um, logistics, I tend to get corporate partners uh, and you do you know, right. the kind of standard sponsorship packages for them. So you have different people who align to different parts of the story and you use your run across India to share that story for them. So when it comes together, how big is the crew? Like how many of you guys oh. like schlep over there? Yeah, I had, oh, I mean, it was it was madness. I don't even, sometimes I go, how did I do that? Um, I had three different crews that came out. Uh-huh. Uh, my first crew, well, I'll talk about kind of the, the foreign crew, so the non-Indian crew. Uh, for the first month, I had what was called um, my like body physical month so everyone I had brought out was you know physio people who would give me tough love I mean it was such a long way to go I couldn't kind of get emotional into like the heart components too much I really need to focus on what the body needed to do 
for anyone who's kind of done really long expeditions, like the first two to three weeks are the hardest. Your body is going through a massive adaption phase. And once it goes through that, it gets more used to the rigors of long days of expedition running. And you actually get used to it. Your body changes and mm-hmm. goes into this different gear and it becomes it becomes your new norm. So until then, you right. need people. It's sort who- of like it's fighting you and fighting you and fighting you. And then it goes, okay, I like mean- now I get what's going on. Like we can get into a groove now. I mean, everything that could go wrong to my body went wrong in my body in the first, from week two to week four. Wow. I, um, from the stress of the project and just dealing with all the different components of it, um, I mean, it was really hot. I mean, the first 800 kilometers of the run was in, you know, 90 to 100 Fahrenheit temperature, 90% humidity. Wow. And I was trying to cover a lot of mileage. So I was doing on average. Like because it's flat. Yeah, it was flat, and I just I only had a couple of community visits in that time, and then I needed to get to the middle section of the run where it was highly densely populated with community visits. Mm-hmm. So I just needed to get through that part of the run, and so I I think in the first three weeks I did over a thousand kilometers. Wow! So it was a super high mileage in that kind of time frame. So everyone I had out was about tough love, right. and so I chose my crew based on the body. And, you know, my stomach once, I think two and a half, three weeks in, my stomach swelled up and I put a photo of it on Instagram and everyone was like, are you pregnant? And I'm like, I certainly hope I'm not. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it was it was so swollen. And then to run with that swelling in the gut and it was just such pain. I, I was like waddling. I was, And then I was just kind of hurled over and, oh, I mean, it, there's some brutal footage of me just trying to get through that. Um, and sometimes you have this vision of what something's going to look like that you're going to be able to run and then you kind of succumb to, to walking and it takes a massive drop of the ego to go, you know what, for the next two days, like I just have to walk right. and I can, you know, I can power walk the shit out of something if I have to. And I was hiking so hard in so much pain and just hoping that I could get through the mileage for that day. Mm-hmm. And then I had a you know stress fracture in um, my ACL and, you know, my physio thought it might have been bone damage. Oh, and how early on in the, in the run did that occur? Three weeks in. Oh, my God. And I... So I, just for clarity, we should probably say, like, this run was how many kilometers in total? 3,253. Okay. And you're covering, like, 45 to 60K a day. Yeah, for, the longest, you know, probably the shortest day was 40. The longest day was 76. Uh-huh. Yeah. So three weeks in. And all t- how many days total? 76. 76. Okay, so three weeks in, you got yeah. a stress fracture. Oh, my God. And imagine what and, the mindset goes through when you're like, I have so much more to go. I haven't even reached Delhi yet, which was mm-hmm. like my month in. And that was like my first like milestone, which you got to break, you know, any long-term goal, you break it into chunks. And I just kept thinking, got to get to Delhi, got to get to Delhi. So you have you you broke this into three parts. You have the tough love section, yep. then you have the head section, and then you have the heart section Correct. to like bring you home. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good sort of um, way of launching into like how you approach such massive goals and obstacles, right? Like you break it into these component pieces. I just have to get to Delhi, or I have to get to the next lamppost, or whatever it is. Like when you're when the rubber hits the road, or your knee is killing you, or what whatever. Like what are you resorting to to push through when I initially my physio I was in a lot of pain I was struggling to even walk and so my physio would bring me into my camper van and I think it's important to note like I lived in a camper van for this entirety of this project not really any water and and you have how many people like in your orbit um (laughs) so it changed let's say for the first month there was maybe like 
eight in that camper van, uh-huh. I could stretch my arm out and touch the head of my photographer. I was like, hey, right. good morning. <laughs> and did you have, were any of these people pacing you or was people it just would, support? People would come out for maybe five Ks at a time. Mm-hmm. It was actually for their mental health at times to get out of that vehicle because that becomes quite a, you know, the air conditioning is going full ball. It's, it's, you kind of detach from the world of India and the people who came out of my crew came out there because they wanted to experience what it was like to do India. This Mm -hmm. wasn't a highly paid gig. It was because they believed in the cause. And so I would have people come out for 5K and and run with me and then jump in the the security car behind me. That's cool. Yeah, it was, and it was great. So it was a revolving door of people and I would just chat to them and and sometimes they knew I didn't want to talk and other times I would just like talk about anything. So how many days in or weeks in before you kind of click into that like sort of new mentality of being in the zone. It's like, this is the new normal. And I get up and this is what I do every day. And it's like, you're kind of in a groove with it. I think I had, I think probably getting to Delhi. So as I said, I had the really bad um, ACL kind of um, issue going on. And so my physio didn't want to tell me at the beginning that he thought it might be bone damage. And I could tell on his face something was wrong. And I'm a, I'm a control freak. This is, I think, a, yeah, I'm a control freak. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a control freak. So I I'm could, shocked to hear that, so but shocked, go ahead. So shocked. So I would look at him in the eye and I could tell that he wasn't telling me something. And that started to freak me out more than anything else because I thought he's not telling me it because maybe he thinks I can't do this. And so I was running with a friend at the time. I'm like, you've got to make him tell me. You've got to make him tell me what's wrong with me. Does he think I can't run further? And finally, he told me, I think you might have a, you know, bone damage uh, around your knee. And the moment he told me, I was like, okay, what's our game plan? This doesn't sound good, but what are we going to do about it? And he said, well, I think we should book an MRI when we get to Delhi to just find out. You've got mm-hmm. a day off in Delhi after you visit some communities in the slums. Let's book in this like MRI. And I'm like, okay. And so I kind of went into overdrive. of okay, I'm going to plan. I called some friends in Delhi. I'm like, can you pull some strings? I have no idea how to work like the medical system in right. India. Managed to kind of work that out. And after that was sorted out, I just said, okay, I've got a plan. I'm just going to get to Delhi. It's going to be ugly. I'm going to have to walk a lot of it. Um, I'm going to maybe have to take quite a few breaks. And I think letting go of the panic just allowed my body to start again to heal itself and well, also you had you had a goal like just we got to get to delhi anything beyond that like is not even worth thinking and i had like about, 400 k right? so i had 400 k mm-hmm. to get to delhi right uh, so it's like <laughs> quite, it's, uh-huh. <laughs> i know it wasn't like i was like 80 k's from delhi i had a, had several days to get to delhi and my goal for the first day was if i can just try and i would always walk the first 4k of every day to just get my body waking up and mm-hmm. i'd get up at 3:45 every morning so it's pitch black and you want to kind of get yourself used to india roads and then i would always run for 15k pretty much straight and when i was injured i was like if i can just if i can run for 400 meters and then walk for 600 meters like then and i can just keep doing 400 meter run 600 meter walk and I would just keep breaking it up and slowly, time after day after day, I was able to stretch out how far I could run and walk. And then I got to Delhi, got the MRI, and it wasn't bone damage. Right. It was just a partial sprain or strain. Mm-hmm. 
And with that, I was like, okay, cool. Well, I can deal with a strain. That's fine. Right. And the relief of that just mentally, I mentally. would imagine like a huge burden is, is lifted yeah. off your shoulders. I mean, I'm very careful how I say this because I think some people don't take notice when their body truly is going through injuries. But I also think people are really conservative. When their body is in discomfort and going through this new sensation, we're so quick to go, oh, I better pull back my training. Mm-hmm. What's actually happening is your body is adapting to a new load. And sometimes you have to give it sleep, give it more food and giving it the right food, hydrate your body, maybe take a couple of supplements, feed it with all the positive love that you can, and you can push through that. And then that's a new boundary of what you're now capable of doing. And I had experienced that in South Africa when I ran across it. So I I knew I would go through a really clunky, yucky phase between week two to week four. And afterwards, yeah, I had pain, like... I was running across India. Did I ever think that that was not going to hurt? Right. Um, but my brain started to compute with the reality of what it was. And yeah, get your brain it. and your body have the ability to acclimate on a level that I think most people never truly access in their lives. And, you know, I had a taste of that in Epic Five, like the fifth Ironman mm. I did, but like felt the best of all of them. And, yeah. you know, when I did the podcast with the Iron Cowboy who did the 50 Ironmans yeah, in 50 states, I follow and, that you know, he did, you know, he basically what he said mimics very closely what you're saying. Like at some point it just clicks in and it becomes your new normal. And that becomes, you know, then like your sense of what's possible expands. Yeah. But I think most people sort of shy back from that before they get to that experience because there is that discomfort period where you think like, this is not right. Or like maybe I'm going too far. And, you know, you see, I see it all the time out here on the trails. Like people go out for, and I've said this before on the podcast, but they're going out for like a 45 minute run or whatever. Yeah, it's hot out, but they're just like burdened with vests that are filled with like all these products and fluids and like, oh, it's, it's like, mm. dude, you're gonna, Don't you're not it. gonna die. Like, come <laughs> on, you know what I mean? Like, what is, you know, your boyfriend, he's in the SAS, he's laughing over there because he's like, yeah, like I, I can't imagine what your training was like, right? Like they didn't give you gels, you know what I mean? So, you know, I think, but, but people are so worried about that, or maybe it's just the marketing machine behind it telling us that we need all this stuff, but like to go without and to have that experience of, uh, of connecting with what your body is actually capable of it. That's where the beauty can occur. And I had the world's greatest perspective, you know, out the, out the doors of that camper van, I was watching women work in the fields tirelessly from sunup to sundown. Um, carrying, you know, logs and heavy branches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw children walking, you know, four to eight Ks in the extreme heat with, you know, one small bowl of rice in their stomach and no shoes on. And so when I would see that type of stuff and what I consider like true duress, I kept thinking I've chosen to be in this situation. And with that choice gives, I think, a high degree of empowerment and like resolve to kind of push through it. I also knew when I got to exit it, I got to, I could exit any point, but I was definitely going to exit, you know, day 76. And so it tempt, you know, at the most it was going to be short-term discomfort. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So what is it about, what is it about, like on a, on a broader level, like what is it about that suffering or that experience of pushing through, you know, what is the allure and like, what does it mean to you? Like, what is it, what is it that you're connecting with and why does that give your life meaning? Do you know, um, I talk about this a bit in my like presentations, but do you know the Latin root of passion is to suffer? I didn't know that, yeah. but I love that. And so often people go, I'm so passionate, I'm so passionate. And I'm like, oh, are you willing to suffer the most in your life for that thing that you're talking that you're passionate about? I mean, it doesn't need to be the thing that you do for your full-time job. What we're passionate about can be fulfilled the most through the thing that we do outside of work because we have the time and space and maybe financial freedom from our full-time job. But I think when you are willing to suffer for something and you connect it for something that's for me outside of myself to a bit – that suffering doesn't seem so great anymore. I really do gain great perspective of it. I also choose when to suffer. Like I don't suffer. Like it's why I don't always race anymore because I know what it's like and how hard it is. And I want to make my footsteps count. And on the idea that maybe we don't have that many footsteps, what is the best use of my footsteps? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people can sort of cavalierly, you know, toss the toss the word addiction. Yeah. You know, in your direction, well, you're just you're just addicted to this, mm. right? Like, so how do you how do you respond to that? I'm not like I'm actually not addicted to running at all. Um, you know, I just you know I can't really talk much about it, but I was just on that TV show Survivor, and I couldn't mm. run the in entirety of it, and I was like, oh, that's fine. And there would be a lot of trail runners and ultra runners that could not cope not being able to run for a couple of weeks. If I get injured for the most part outside of an expedition, I just say to myself, well, that's my body's way and my mind's way of telling me I'm meant to focus my energy elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think I'm addicted. It doesn't cause you any kind of like stress or duress? To no, not really. Like I just keep, I always just say to myself, just there's so many things in life that you care about. And sometimes we can get caught up in the, the rigor of having to run every day and do a certain amount of mileage and achieve personal best through whatever is that physical pursuit at that time. But there's more to me than just a runner. You know, I'm always very hesitant to say that. In fact, I try not to say I'm a runner. I try and say I'm an endurance athlete, which is so mm -hmm. ambiguous that no one really knows what it means. <laughs> um, but I, you know, there's so much to me and what I care about that if I can't run for three weeks, I can spend my time pretty worthy and feel value in who I am as a person outside of that. Well, there's a certain mastery, I think, that comes with that. Like if you like being grounded enough 
and being connected enough with yourself to like be okay with whatever is happening, right? Mm. It's sort of a, a detachment from expectations and a a just a being, you know, sort of being in the present with what is happening and being in acceptance or surrender, surrendering to that. It's something I've had to work a lot on. Yeah, it's not <laughs> I'm easy. De- I'm definitely not um, enlightened. As, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe I spend so much time in India to try and get uh, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I was, a, I was a lawyer like you and I felt um, that perceived version of success was, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and, you know, looking a certain way and, be, you know, communicating in a certain way. And very quickly I worked out that law wasn't the right path for me. And to walk away from it wasn't as hard as maybe it should have been considering I studied nine years to, to get mm-hmm. into that position. But then I wasn't brave enough to go and work for myself, and I, I went to finance because I thought, oh, that's another, that's another version of success. If I, you know, work in financial advice, uh, and then I was like, oh no, I don't really suit that. And then I worked in communications, and then I was like, no, nah, Sam, like you're actually a terrible employee. You're really, really bad. And <laughs> I used to always say, no, they don't understand me, and like they're really harsh on me. And then I had this aha moment, going, no you don't want to do what they need. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's their prerogative as your employer to expect a certain type of maybe behavior or standard. And I wanted to go and run across a desert or I wanted to take, you know, four weeks to do a run across South Africa. So yeah, why won't they give me all this time off? I mean, like they don't understand me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you figured it out a lot sooner than I did. (laughs) I I did a lot of suffering in the law firm environment for you. So I can tell you that you you got out when you needed to. Yeah. I wish I had had the sense of self and the wherewithal to um, be able to be connected enough with myself to, to you know, have that self-awareness to make those kind of moves earlier. Yeah, I, I observed um, particularly the women who were in senior positions at the law firm to me. And, I, and you were, I mean, just for clarity, like you were at Baker and McKenzie, like yeah. this is a huge international law firm. Like it's not some small operation. I was lucky. I Sometimes I think I wouldn't have got that job now, um, considering how competitive it is. I definitely was what I consider a flight risk. In fact, myself and a few other girlfriends who all got job at, jobs at Bakers, I think that we were we were all flight risks. We were bleeding heart humanitarians who, you know, travelled a lot, had a lot of multiple interests outside of law, and I, I think now they would see a red flag on our CVs. But at the time, Baker and McKenzie were hiring that type of person. I think we may be. T- kind of um, change that. That's an attractive candidate. Mm. You want a well-rounded person. Uh, I mean, I went to law school with a lot of people like that, but then, then, you know, the paychecks start getting dangled in front of Mm. people's eyes. And a lot of that sort of do-gooder, you know, sensibility that attracted you to law school in the first place sort of gets pushed quietly aside. And it's like, well, I'll go do this for a while. I mean, in the United States, like most law students that graduate law school have tremendous loans they have to repay. And the idea of going to work for a nonprofit or something, it just doesn't, it's not sensible at that phase. Like I'll pay off my debt and then, you know, I'll go do the thing that I want to do. There's always a deferment of that thing that you truly wanted to do. And for a lot of people, they just, they never make it back because they get sucked into the system and the money's too good. And, you know, they blank and then they're, you know, partner and they're kind of in. Well, I said to myself, I'm either going to leave now um, because if I get used to the security of this type of income, maybe it's going to be harder to walk away. And I thought, you know, what if I then have kids and then there's going to be so many other excuses of why it wouldn't be fair to walk away from that security. So I did it quite early in my degree because Mm -hmm. I 
didn't own a home. I didn't have children. And, you know, I didn't did your friend, did your flight risk friends quit also? We all quit you within did. a six month period. <laughs> and they're all my, I mean, we're still. Are they on um, your crew? Did they come to India with you? Uh, no, but one of them was working at World Vision at the time. Uh, and that was just completely cool. coincident. And the other one was working for the UN and she was, um, Oh, she would think she'd just left Cambodia at that time. So um, we all kind of did our own different thing. Um, I felt bad for Baker and McKenzie that the three amigos left them. Well, <laughs> and within know, a six-month period. they used to huge turnover. They are. You know, they I do mean. invest quite a lot in your training and development at the time. Um, and I don't ever begrudge or regret that I did that. I mean, I got an excellent solid base of what it's mm-hmm. like to be a lawyer. And, you know, if I get contracts thrown my way right now, I can review them with a lot of... Oh, it, like, always, comes into, oh, it always comes into play. It you does. Know, I always think like that, I mean, I took a million depositions as a lawyer and I def- that helps me as a podcaster. You know, I know how to like, you know, pay attention and ask questions. Mm. But do you have like, do you, how do you think about the sort of, uh, I mean, a big thing about going to law school is it, it trains you in a certain way of thinking, like a certain mentality and how you approach problem solving. Does that come into play in ultra running? I mean, I know you also have this other, you have the artist side of you as well, the actress side. And I know that you've talked about um, how the performance art arts training has kind of um, has applicability in your running. So how I do think, those two things work? I think both of them. And I mean, anything that you do for that period of time and the training in both performing arts and law was a nine-year phase of my you know academic life and then I actually practice as a lawyer I think anything that you do moving forward will draw from that um, skill base and you will incorporate that into how you you act and conduct yourself and engage with other people and the projects that you choose to take on I mean I think I'm very methodical with um the way I approach an ultramarathon, but I'm also very careful and I have a degree of like um, risk mitigation in my Mm -hmm. approach to it, which is weird for the fact that I ran across India, but I don't think anyone will ever know how much risk analysis I did in a project like that to make it a project that wouldn't flop over and be a detriment to myself and the people who connected themselves to it. What would be an example of one of those risks that might not be self-evident that you had to like figure out how to navigate? I mean, there's... Like water, right, would be one? Access to water. And there was sections of our... I mean, people think that, you you know, there can be hundreds and hundreds of kilometres in India where you don't have access to a store. Uh, and it, we would kind of camp a lot of the times, our camper van, at petrol stations. But they only sell petrol. Like, they don't sell water or any other supplies because they can't undercut the stalls that are along the way. Mm. So there's, you know, those stalls, those tea houses have a monopoly. Um, and so your access to water was definitely one. In you this, have to know where all of those are, right? Yeah, and I had to, I hired a local team and they were amazing, but um, there was definitely at times when you had to have trust that they had your best interests at heart. And, you know, there's an, the Indian culture is so like, there's a ruthlessness to it because you think of the population size to be successful in India, you have to have a ruthlessness and a competitiveness and you have to fight hard. And so for a lot of my crew members to go out there, they kept saying, I'm getting screwed over by India. I'm getting screwed over by Indians. I'm like, no, you are now in India. You need to understand the environment and the context in what you're working in. And as opposed to getting angry at someone, think why they're like that. They're like Mm -hmm. that because that is the only way for them to be successful normally. 
It's mm. a dog eat dog world sometimes. So it took me a while to, and I would make so many cultural mistakes that I would. The culture was the hardest thing that right. I kept finding. There was risk in not understanding it um, for the project for me. I mean, there were so many times when we got told we're going to turn the camper van around if you don't give us X amount of dollars. And there was bribery all along the way wow. and mm-hmm. just, the, you know, imagine trying to, I remember in the first couple of weeks of the run, I'd be running, anytime I'd go to the camper van, I'd have to take a phone call to the media or I'd have to write this blog or I'd have to answer this advice or we were getting traffic problems up ahead or our, the police escort, you know, wanted X amount of dollars. Right. And I'm just trying to run and I was like, I can't deal with all of so this you gotta right like now. have like a slush fund for like just, you know, sliding off a few bills every, every now and again for uh, whoever to grease the palm. Oh, uh, yeah. And you you can't even like write, you can't even record all that kind of stuff because it's just, it's the smallest amount of cash, but then right. it all adds up and yeah, it was tough. What is, you know, what, what was the big, the most surprising thing about India and the culture that you encountered? Like what is, you know, what is it like to traverse all of India and, and all of these different, you know, provinces of this mm-hmm. amazing place that you got to experience? All that the, the country can change within 50 kilometers from language, not just dialect, language, from the terrain, from the way the people look. It is a country with 100 countries within it. Uh, and that makes sense because of the way that India, mm-hmm. you know, Bangladesh and, you know, now West Bengal. And there's, there's obviously the country has changed quite a lot over the years. But, you know, the influence, the Tibetan influence up north and, um, you know, the country's incredibly incredibly diverse which is why you can't put a blanket solution on the country when it's talking about access to quality education you need to look in like microcosm to that certain community and go what is going to work with this community what are they going to pick up Mm -hmm. are they going to pick up economic development initiatives are they going to want um you know to focus on you know uh, nutrition or are they what's going to work for them that is going to make it sustainable and flourish into the future yeah, I've never been to India. Julie's been, but you know, as somebody who doesn't know that much about it, from a bird's eye view looking down, it, it looks like total chaos. Like, but the, they like get madness. that chaos. Like Indians understand that chaos. We don't understand it. So us, so a, a Westerner trying to go in and operate, you know, whether in a business sense or a pleasure sense for travel, it can be incredibly overwhelming, and you have to almost succumb to it, and you just have to kind of give in to what that is, which is why my diet was Indian. I never tried to, you know, have a Western style diet mm-hmm. whilst running across the country. I learned that the hard way in Rice South Africa. Oh, I I mean, I would have chapatis and I mean, I ate so much food, but it was probably the best food you could eat to try to run across a country to sustain the bulk of your body and not kind of fall apart and be a little weed finishing, you know, the run right. as well. And did people know what you were doing as you were passing through? I mean, did you have kids and people come out and run mm. with you? Were they? Did they have an awareness of what was? I mean, I know there was yeah. press in India, but mm. what, like, what was the day to day experience of that like? People worked out. I mean, I had quite an extensive Indian crew, and I I had two support vehicles in my camper van. So one of my support vehicles would go ahead and kind of check the route, pick up any supplies that we needed, and had run India on it. And they would talk to all the locals. So people were waiting for us and everyone would be screaming, run India, run India. Uh, and so I'd be running. And That's pretty cool. It, and there, when I was in Rajasthan, um, there was a pilgrimage happening in the opposite direction. So hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people were walking in the opposite direction that I was running. And, you know, it's probably 
three sizes of this, which is the road um, of this, you know, um, shed right now. And they would kind of just all be clapping and I'd be clapping at them because they were walking. They were walking 150K one way, taking off their shoes, praying, and then coming back 150K. And they would stop maybe every 30K per day and, like, sleep together in these communal environments with music and communal food. Um, so I felt like I was doing this like reverse pilgrimage in an opposite direction and I loved Rajasthan because although there was a lot of intensity with stairs and you know so many people it was a real friendliness to it and mm. just it was a it was a beautiful curiosity as I got further north into the country um, those stairs were not curious they were of hate and um, disdain and that was a very difficult thing to kind of get through but it was something that i prepared myself for as well disdain rooted in what like what where is that what's the origin of that um it's hard to know i'm not them and i try not to pretend to understand everything about um india i think seeing a woman running freely Mm -hmm. i would never see women on the streets Uh, i would never see a woman riding a motorbike uh, and here I was, a woman in shorts, and I know people are going to be like, you should have worn long pants. Well, you run in 110 degrees mm-hmm. in pants and see how it feels. I would have died. And I got to a certain point where I was like, you know what, I'm going to be as respectful as I can, but I am an athlete and I'm going to stand for being an athlete running and I need to I need to do what's right for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I've got my security team and I'm wearing a top that's appropriate, but I need to, I need to wear shorts. Right. So that was occurring more in the heart section. Like yeah, the third this, section is the elevation starts to go up. Yeah, and, and the very, very top, and, it's great because mm-hmm. um, that's quite like this Tibetan Nepalese influence as right. well. But the kind of the northern central belt um, of like Lucknow and um, Haridwar, was, no, it wasn't too bad, but um, Kanpur. Yeah, there was uh, Marut, which has got a high, um, high degree of kidnappings. And so, you know, there was men on mopeds, particularly during the festive seasons that were riding around spitting at me. Um, you know, there was a man who was slashed open, dead on the ground, wow. tied up by a horse, and there's people who were just watching it. And yeah, there was a lot of confront. You know, there's obviously there's um, people who are poor and um, starving and, and begging, but seeing like the mental illness side of that as well, um, and, you know, you just wanted to give water. To, I always felt like I was never doing enough. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do so much more than I could do. And I think I'd well, feel you're that. you in a part of the world where the volumes turned up to 10. I yep. mean, you know, in India, it's just, it's so in your face, right? Like mm. the, just because there's so many people and there's so much yeah. poverty. It's quite overwhelming even just thinking about it. You know, you go back to some of those moments and it's only when I do a podcast when I have this liberty that you give me to speak about this story for you know 40 minutes whatever it is do I take myself back there and normally when people ask me in my day-to-day life how is India they just they want a short condensed answer (laughs) they want a sentence sentence. so my awesome so my answer was oh it was really complicated it was harder than I thought but amazing and then they're like awesome great cool right and I don't don't even know how to answer it in I either give you that superficial giving you or nothing like, answer. How many hours do you have? Or uh, let's sit down for a little while and have a chat. And right. so it's it's been a long time since I've sat down and like thought back to those moments of, of running up to Nainatal, which is this province, um, although it's this, this town, um, kind of the, the foothills of the Himalayas. And there was this lady standing on her own up a switchback on a road and she was – I don't know um, if she was either starving or dehydrated and I think there was really strong mental illness there but I just 
I kept kind of like going back. I was like, I can't leave her. I need to do something. And I kept kind of going back up and down and thinking that I needed to do more. And I gave her water. And like my Indian team were like, you've just got to go. Like there's nothing you can do. Mm. And it's, um, it's a shit feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately you, you raised $150,000. Yeah, yeah, at a, at a minimum one hundred fifty. I don't know the, the final tally, but we, mm-hmm. we were funding six education programs. Yeah. And that's that's where that money's getting funneled yeah. into program into yep. programming. And I went to those communities where that funding is going as well. So there's quite a nice connection to actually see the people where the funds will change their lives directly. Right. And and how do you kind of conceptualize? You know, I'm not looking for a pithy answer, but you know, in the wake of this experience, like, did it change you? Like, how do you think about poverty education, India, and that experience overall? Like on a personal level. Like, what did it mean to you? I mean, I try not to sweat the small stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's very easy. It's hard to adapt to India and it's so easy to adapt back home. And so it's, you know, we, the life of comfort is so easy to get into and the life of um, simplicity is sometimes much more challenging. Um, You can't help but keep wanting to seek that, to go back to that where life is simple and, it feels like it makes sense and when you walk away from it and you're doing what sometimes feels like the mundane you know it, it is in my natural inclination to think what next and I have forced myself to not plan another project for a while I mean that was mm-hmm. kind of three years really heavy focus of my life where I didn't think of anything else there was definitely impacts on like relationships and just you know, it was it was all consuming to make that thing happen every single day. It was a challenge in the lead up to it. Nothing went to plan, and that set me up right. really well for yeah. India because getting the funding, even getting the permits, getting people on board, um, people loved the idea, but backing it was more challenging. And I had to really, I had to back myself more than I've ever backed myself in my life. Mm-hmm. So I now need to have a little break of I can't keep chasing that. You can't keep chasing that feeling. Um, Unless it feels really right, yeah, and so yeah. But but your capacity for resilience and malleability must be through the roof, right? Because you've had, I mean, when when it when nothing goes to plan and you're in these you know incredibly trying circumstances and you've got you know however many weeks mm. to go, you know you adapt, right? Like mm. so when you come back, I mean, everybody that I've spoken to who's been to India, they have trouble reacclimating when they come home for a variety of reasons and and they're just going to like an ashram they're not like yeah. you know, doing anything like <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean uh uh but you know sort of having that that knowledge like that sense of what you're capable of and your your ability to kind of like you know weather whatever gets thrown at you has to be you know a very fulfilling sort of feeling to have i think resilience um, at a high degree is really possible for anyone if you really believe in what you're doing. And I think our capacity to be tolerant and understanding if we back ourselves and we have the support by others for, for that is through the roof. I mean, I don't always have high resilience, but I think um, for in those circumstances, it, it's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. So what do you tell people who come to you and say, I'm trying to do my first ultra or my even my first 5k mm. uh you know how can i get like a little how can i slice off a little of samantha i just say know why you're doing it like be really clear on your why um and you know like i mean you're i follow your training and i think you're quite incredible 
to be so consistent and whether it's just social media that allows me to think that I think you're incredibly disciplined and consistent with your training, even when you don't have a race. Um, it's obviously a way of life for you. I think yeah, some it's people... Like, it's funny when people say that, thank you for mm-hmm. that, but like it, it almost makes me uncomfortable because honestly, it's like what I prefer to do. Like I feel guilty because I, sh- I feel like I should be doing something else. But like mm. if I was single, I, I could easily like move into a hut and just like do that all day. Like I, that's my choice. You know, it's my, yeah. that's my love. Mm. Well, that's your why. Like you love it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's part of who you are and the fabric of your DNA now, whether it was from the beginning or it's something that is created into you but I think for people who are, are tackling a new challenge that's not a part of their DNA um, and they want to be able to deal with the challenges that it poses and obviously training for an ultra marathon or a marathon a half marathon you just I think if you know why you're doing it you're able to deal with um, the challenges of time commitments the doubt within yourself if you get injuries, if you don't succeed in the way that you wanted to the first time around, like I think you can kind of keep going back to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you have to know why you're doing it. You know, a lot of people approach me, oh, I'm training for this, I'm training for that. And it's like, why are you doing that? Like, mm. what's going on with you personally? Why is this important to you? What is meaningful about this? What are you seeking to learn about yourself via this experience? And I think when you have a grip on that in a healthy way, that helps inform, you know, the approach to seeing it through, uh, as opposed to like, oh, I don't know, I didn't think about, you know, like yeah. I think you like, like you're going to burn out, or you're just going to that day is going to come where you wake up and you just don't feel like it, and yeah. then it's probably not going to happen for it's, you. It's not a particularly mindful way of going about something that's going to cause a lot of you know pain and potentially mm-hmm. um, discomfort to you. So. Um, I think it also helps inform your support network that you create around you. So if you know why you're doing something, you know, whether you get a coach or whether you seek, you know, advice or support from friends or what you seek from your partner in order to kind of like keep pushing you, you, you're a bit more clear in what you need to get in order to do this big, great, audacious goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, sort of interlineated in what you just said is, is understanding that even if it is an individual pursuit or goal, that these things don't happen in a vacuum or isolation. Like you, you need a team, like you need people who support you, who have your back and can hold you accountable and lift you up. These things don't happen. You know, it's not, we have this ego attachment to like I did, or it's not how it works at all. Yeah. I mean, I might have been the one who ran across India, but I can like, wholeheartedly say that I would not have done it if I didn't have my team. Yeah. And what an incredible group of people, uh, you know, to sort of take a time out from their lives mm. and devote themselves. I mean, obviously it was an, a grand adventure, but I think t- people <laughs> underestimate like how difficult oh, it is to it was not romantic. crew <laughs> any kind of ultra event, let alone an expedition on that scale. Mm. You know, I can't and, imagine. Yeah. And it's amazing what they did. And sometimes I always feel, I feel so guilty for what they go through in order to be there. Now, a couple of years ago. I'm so sorry. Thank I'm you. So Thank sorry. you. I'm so sorry. And I tried to be so, I'm like, come, come out. Let me let's, let's yeah. talk about you. Tell me about your problems. <laughs> but you and I have both experienced crewing at the same time together. Ah. We both crewed at the same Badwater event. You were there? I was there. How did I not meet you? We actually passed each other. We did? So this, this is a cool Who story. Were you so for? I was listening. So you were crewing Dean. Uh-huh. I was crewing Kath Todd. Uh, the girl who won. Yeah. So when Dean was, so you guys were on the right hand side of the road, and um, I think Dean was having a bit of a. You were a very blokey team, right? 
Yeah, it was all guys. It was all boys. Um, And Kath was running quite well at this point. It was just before the night time. And we just kind of ran past and we kind of had a bit of an exchange. Hey, Dean, you know, you guys said hey to us. And she kept going. Uh And so I was listening to, I know, I was listening to Dean's podcast and then i was listening to david goggins podcast and uh, we were all there that's crazy at the, so I was and then you, you spoke to them about it at the same time like oh my gosh i was there then and then i remember when we passed goggins as well that's amazing i didn't know i wish i had known I know. well you know who else was there was shannon for our griefer do you know shannon no. ultra shannon oh is this she did the double i think she was the first woman to do the double bad water oh she she didn't have a good race like it, she's you know dealing with some health issues right now but she lives right near here and every time i go out there's one trail where i got to run and i would i would say 95 percent of the time when i go out there i see her out there and That's she awesome. had an all-female crew like all these hotties <laughs> uh, well you guys had the, the boys crew we had a mixed crew we had someone who was from canada we had someone from vegas and i was from australia and we all had met kath through different circumstances so i met kath in india uh, and she was going to do wow. that ultra race, but she pulled out because she couldn't handle the altitude. But we connected really well. And she's like, you know, I know you like to talk a lot. So can you come and crew me and just talk the entire time when you pace me? Is that the, your one experience at Badwater? Yeah. It was a rude awakening for me. Yeah. I was in no form or shape to <laughs> I be remember listening to your podcast when all. he's like, you're going to have to run this and this. And you're like, Yeah, well, Jason Coop, who, Jason Coop, who's like his coach, mm. who was kind of crew captain. I was like, how much does Dean want to say? Like, I just figured, oh, we'll, we'll pace him in like the last 50 miles. But like <sighs> most of it, we're just going to be doing handoffs. He's like, no, he wants someone to run with him the whole time. Yep. I literally went ashen. <laughs> and the first real pull I had was like the hottest part of the day. So where did you and start just, with I him? I blew up. Like I had to stop. Like I couldn't do my whole pull. Like I was like, it's too hot. I'm, I thought I was going to be like, you know, the only crew guy in the medical tent. So, I ended up running with him all night. Like once it got dark and it was fine and it was good. But like I didn't train. I was not really training. And like I just went in over my head. I felt bad about it. it how, long, how long were the stretches that he had you doing? I mean, there were a couple hours depending upon how that's, people that's felt. That's long. Like yeah. that's I mean, we – so Kath took 32 hours and I mean – we didn't sleep the entire 32 hours. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you didn't sleep either. Crewing that race taught me what crewing really means. If you're crewing someone to make the most of every advantage they can possibly have. Bad water There's is... There's no downtime. Yeah, bad water... You think wa- it's going to be chill and you're going to be in the van like listening to music with the air conditioning on. Like, I felt no, like no, we no, did no, it no. harder than the runner. Yeah. <laughs> and then- the other thing is like you're not supposed to put the air conditioning on mm. in the van because it'll overheat. Yeah, and we had... A, I mean... I learned so much about crewing from that experience as well. And I've implemented in other experiences when I crew people in those types of races. You know, when you're crewing in India and it's 77 days, you better not expect that from someone because yeah. it's way too high Turn demand. But uh, in bad water, you know, the way Kath wanted to be crewed is you obviously you run behind her. She doesn't even speak to you. She just puts her hand out right or left if she wants a certain water bottle. And you've got to kind of like put your hand out and get it in the right spot. Right, like and a then, track and field I know, baton and then, and then be ready when she wants to return it back to you. And then she'd be like, okay, I want you to wet my face and, with some ice cubes. And she goes, you know, get my face, but don't get my glasses. And, you know, get, it was... It was so intense and some people can go, she was high maintenance. But at the same time, this girl is going, you know, she's going for the win. She was hopefully she going the right for the record. High, yeah, it's she, like this is, she's a high performing elite athlete. Yeah, and from your, if anyone here is listening to this and they are 
about to crew someone, I, I think the best crew are those who are able to take the runner's goal as their own. So a win in whatever PB they wanted or whatever thing is a win for them and they can't be sensitive. Yeah. And I just think you can't take what someone does. Obviously, you're, hopefully your runner is respectful and they definitely apologize at the end for anything and they've got manners, but I think you have to understand that they are at their the limit of their capabilities and like it's a fine, fine mm-hmm. line that they're playing on. Yeah, it ain't a party. That's for it's sure. It's not a party. No one's and having a party. That's why they say like never have your friends crew for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's I, like, yeah, when, I mean, it's, you're stripped down to like, you're just rawest self. Oh. And it's inevitable that there's going to be, you know, outbursts or, you mm-hmm. know, emotions. And as a crew member, you also have to be highly attuned to the psychology of your athlete, right? Like you need to know when what they're asking for is not right. And you have to like sort of step in and say, no, you should be doing this. Um, I was amazed at how Dean maintained his composure. Like he was polite and gracious throughout. Like I never saw him crack on that level and he wasn't having a great race. Like he had every reason Mm. to be like frustrated and, and kind of let that loose and how that flows downstream onto the crew. And I, I never saw him do that. And that's like a, I mean, that takes extreme character you know? and, I and think it's experience. I was, I was about to say, it's got a lot to do with experience yeah. that not everything is riding on that run. Mm-hmm. He's been there, done that before yeah. and knows that some runs will work and others won't, um, that he's only going to probably perform worse if he starts to let his mind take control in a negative sense. So he was, you know, the heat of bad order is so hot that if you start, and same as India, if you start to freak out, that heat intensifies and you actually realize how hot it is. So there has to be this calmness and almost meditative like spirit when you're running in those types of environments. Well, let's take it back a little bit. Um, I fear that certain people that are listening are, are going to form this impression that you're just some crazy outlier genetic freak who oh was born gosh, to just be this amazing runner and it was just bred into you from the get-go. But your origin story, you know, belies that notion. Yeah, I was really, really uncoordinated, not particularly fit. Uh, Growing I was, up in Melbourne, up, never really played sports. Yeah, I was, a, a, I was a kind of country girl. Um, I think I was afraid of um, embarrassing myself and and looking like a fool. So I would often not try things. And I was that kid in primary school that when they picked, you know, when they do that schoolyard pick, which I think is the worst thing you can ever do. I'm very familiar with this. Are we going to both be like that last kid standing? (laughs) (laughs) So I was always... Anything having to do with eye-hand coordination. And isn't it... Exactly. And isn't it terrible that as long as you're not the last kid picked, you're like, oh, phew. You know, if you're the second last kid pick, you're like, well, that's all right. At least I wasn't standing on that line by myself. Uh So I was not a great athlete. um, And I I really, my primary school years were just of me being a bit of a, I mean, for those who, you know, are listening in the podcast and have never seen a photo of me standing next to someone. I mean, there's probably a reason why I have a lot of solo photos on my Instagram account. It's because I'm four foot 11.5. So I'm pretty short. I like the 0.5 part. Yeah, well... I'm trying to be very accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was teased a lot growing up, and I think it's because I didn't own my space. I didn't own, you know, 
I think kids... Well, it's interesting that you would go into performing arts then because that takes a certain sense of self-composure. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to, um, to high school, I started to kind of build and gather in my own wonderful weirdness and I, I owned it and, and it was actually through in year seven I got into the school play and I was the first year seven student to get into the school play mm-hmm. and it was all of a sudden I felt that I was around like my like-minded, interesting bizarre unique people who were also at the same time you know pretty smart and were good at sport and it kind of taught me that I can try those other things and still be this arty small kid who you know does is not really sure of her place Uh, so I think performing arts was a real eye-opener and um and and independence it's um, interesting that you would then pursue law though because it's sort you know it's sort of a binary thing like you're going to be an arty kid or you're going to be kind of the sensible you know, business-minded mm. person. I mean, if you're going to be a trial lawyer, then like yeah. performing arts is, you know, fantastic. But most people who end up going into law aren't, aren't the people that are in the school play. Yeah, in Australia it is. Really? Yeah, in Australia, um, a lot of people who were very performance-driven, high communicators, a little bit, a little Oops. bit wacky. You just drop the pen, I hit your my head. Pen, sorry. <laughs> I know. And it's on Facebook Live, Live. so, you know, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I feel like that's a bit different in Australia. I mean, a lot of the people that I know really were a bit of um, people on the stage and then, like, went into law and then left law quite quickly because it was too much of a tight, you know, square for them that they didn't want to fit into. Right. So at what point do you decide law? Like, how does it work in Australia? Like, in the United States, you go to university and then you go to law school. Mm. Do you start studying law, like, when you're in... College? Yes, yeah, so a college. So I um, started with a performing arts degree. I took I took a year off after uh, finishing year twelve, and I travelled throughout the states. Mm-hmm. Um, did like thirty states with my backpack in the year, uh, and then came back and did my degree, which was a performing arts and law degree. Um, and in Australia, law is just your undergraduate degree, and then you can be- you become a lawyer, and then you have to, as a lawyer, you then do another year. Uh, training, oh, which gives you a practicing certificate, so we don't sit the bar. I see. That was a convoluted way of answering that. No, I got yeah. it. I got it. I got it. So, so how old are you then when you you're like this young lawyer at Baker and McKenzie? Yeah, I wasn't that young because I had found ultra running during that time. So in two 2000- thousand. Oh, I see. So, mm. Yeah, but now I remember. Like you started, you started running when you were like doing sitting for your exams and things yeah. like that as a stress reliever, right? Exactly. So I did my first marathon, um, which was a massive thing for me, big deal. Like really had never run that much, and then decided, okay, I'm gonna. I, I found a group of friends who were a little bit older who were who were running, so I started to run with them and do fun runs and did my first half marathon, and I was just like, wow, like. I don't just physically feel amazing, but mentally I feel the strongest that I've ever felt in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I felt it was a bigger endorphin hit than acting on the stage. or And, and I loved acting. So for me to feel that through running um, So you was knew, huge. like this connected with you. It just... I mean, you weren't like winning the half marathon, right? You were nah, just like a, a middle of the pack. I was a middle friends, of the pack. Right? Yeah, middle of the pack. And then I did my first marathon, nearly pulled out 32K because it hurt. <laughs> Um, and my girlfriend kind of basically dragged me through the last 10 Ks and it was that near failure that made me do my first ultra. 
So here's where I think it gets super interesting and you take like the road less traveled, right? Mm. So most people would be like, okay, that was fun. Like maybe I'll be this like hobbyist marathoner and do a marathon a year or maybe use that as my vacation, go to some destination and run a marathon. That's most people, right? Mm. But you go from being this person who struggled to finish their first marathon and almost pulled out the next thing you do is you sign up for the four. You're like, then I got into ultras. Like, no, you sign up for the four deserts. Like that was going to be your next thing, right? Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. So I signed up for the first race of that series. I signed up for the Atacama Crossing in Chile. Mm. And it was that was the only one I so wanted to do. So it wasn't the plan to do four. You were just going to do one. I was just going to do one. And I considered it a once in a lifetime opportunity, which I feel like my life has had this thread of, oh, you've got to do this once in a lifetime thing and- all of a sudden I become, that becomes my serious <laughs> part of my life. Once a, well, everything you do is once in a lifetime. Yeah, and right? then it becomes like my addiction, you know, in a sense. Um, and the running isn't the addiction, the adventure and like living life on the edge and, you know, pushing the boundaries of what we're humanly capable of and then realizing like our limits are so far deeper than we ever thought possible. And mm-hmm. um, But then also having like the self of like the understanding yourself to not always have to push into that place. Right. Sometimes it's but important. you didn't have that sensibility when you signed up for Atacama, oh, right? No, You're just going to th- go do this crazy desert yeah. thing. It was a crazy, it's like, oh, I'm going to be Sam Gash, and she likes to do different things. She's going to run in the Atacama Desert. She's going to take six months off she's uni. she's so interesting. Because she's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone uh, was like, you're so crazy. I'm like, yeah, I'm so crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah, just watch me. Yeah, just watch me. I'm just going to be this little girl running across the desert with a massive backpack on. So so you go to, like, why that one, though? It just well, sounded it, so. It worked Wild. out. It worked out well with my university. Timing wise, um, but also something about reading about the salt flats, and I, I just I really felt a connection to like the Atacama Desert on an academic level. Like I just liked right. the sound of it. You know, the Sahara. I was like, okay, that's sand. Antarctica. I, I need to do another race to qualify, and that's way too expensive. And China didn't appeal a great deal to me. So um, I wanted to do that, and then I linked it into a three month placement at a capital defense office so i kind of was doing this north and south america um experience and making six months off university worth it i see okay so did you have an awareness that there was such a thing as that like that the possibility existed that you could do four and that no woman had ever done that before no, i never knew it you didn't i didn't know, know it right, i knew so- there was three of the races i didn't ever believe that someone would even comprehend doing four mm-hmm and now we're going to intersect with a, a podcast that I did probably two years ago at this point. Yeah. I can't remember exactly when it was, but with with Jennifer, the director of Desert Runners, mm-hmm. and that's where your name first came up on the podcast um, because she documented this experience, right? But maybe you know, walk us through the experience of the first one and what triggered you to then mm-hmm. tackle all four. So I was... Um, doing my clerkships at law firms in the summer before I went across to Chile. And I was living this extreme life of working really, really hard at the law firm and then partying and then trying to train to run Mm -hmm. this ultra marathon, which I didn't even know how to train because back in 2010, there wasn't much content available for how to run an ultra marathon, particularly an ultra marathon that requires you to carry everything that you require in a pack on your back whilst you're racing particularly for a female who was a pescatarian. Right. So this whole, like, I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I was making it up. And one night I went out late and I was dancing. I was wearing heels. And, but I'd said to myself, 
the next day it's going to be my final long run before I fly to Chile. And I got up, I felt exhausted. I didn't really want to go train, but I was like, no, you've got to do it. And put my backpack on, put all these soup cans in my backpack to try and simulate the weight. And I always go, why didn't you just put like the sleeping bag that you were going to use? And why didn't you put the stuff that you're using, not these like jarring soup cans that like dug into my back as I ran? Because you're ultra. Because I'm so crazy. (laughs) And I twisted my ankle during that run and had this really bad injury. And I think I was very close to not doing the race that I had like been so excited about for five months. And I decided the only way I could possibly do it was to walk it. And I had had a moon boot on till about... 10 days before the race and so i wow. just started so how, and how long how long was the moon boot on six weeks whoa six so weeks. no running no running no running i did like one hike in santiago before the race and my legs were so sore the next day because i hadn't used them in six weeks and i was like well i might be able to get through day one but i doubt my legs are going to feel pretty great on day two mm-hmm. and so i just I remember the restraint I had at the start line on day one, watching everyone run, bolt off the start line. And I was like, oh, don't don't go, don't go. You can't run. You have to walk. And I was walking with the guys with like the poles and Mm. who were, you know, not to judge, but were overweight and looked like they hadn't trained. And I felt like, oh, this is not where I wanted to be, but just accept it. Like, Just accept it. Like you're lucky that you're 25 and you get to be, you know, in San Pedro de Atacama. Day one walked, day two walked. In fact, I was known as like this, so I'm short. I've got this massive backpack on that weighs 25% of my body weight, big water bottles at the front of my chest, and I had my arms out straight because I didn't want to get chafing under my arms, and I had two pigtails down my, you know, the side of my. And so the film crew could always see me from far away because they said I had this very militant, like, very hardcore power hike and my arms would be waving straight in the air so they said they always recognized me from the very like from far away uh-huh. um and they just thought i was like this cute little aussie girl who was just pretty slow and doing her best to get by she's in over her head yeah she doesn't know what she's doing so <laughs> i was like i was a battler i was in the you know bottom third of, of the field day five came on which was 74 k's And I started to, I mean, it feels weird to say that, but it's almost like walking in that desert and being calm about having to walk healed my injury. And on day five, I was like, am I so bold as to maybe try and shuffle? And so I just started shuffling. Wasn't fast. And I shuffled the first like 45K and I didn't even stop. And I like started to see people that I had never seen any other days mm. in the races. And right, everyone, the war of attrition, they're, yeah. they're starting to drop. Yeah, they'd gone out too hard too early. And I got to this point where all of a sudden I caught up to three Aussie guys. And you have never seen a group of guys so unhappy to see a girl in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> How many women were in the field? Uh, maybe like 20% of the field. Mm-hmm. And I, they looked at me and one of them was my boyfriend at the time. And the panic on his face that I had caught up to him and he was in the top 20 of the field and I was like the bottom 20 of the field and on the big 74k stage we ended up finishing that stage together and I actually felt that I held myself back to finish the final 25ks with the boys right and I just remember thinking okay like it was a massive confidence booster that 
you know, I still got first in my age group that race. And that was my goal going into it. That's amazing. So yeah. from struggling to complete your first marathon to being in a boot for six weeks before this thing and mm-hmm. walking most of it and then just hammering, you know, just the like longest crushing stage. the longest day, yeah. you know, and, and then I crushed and doing the it in last style. Day. Yeah, yeah, crushed the last, the, that day and then the last 24Ks, I came in like third female. Um, and I just thought maybe there is something to be said about you know, maybe I was strategic without even knowing it. Like maybe mm-hmm. the injury allowed me to drop my ego, observe people around me, focus on the mind being the power as opposed to the physicality uh, and fo- and see where is the most important part about that race, which is a 74K long stage and attacking that. Because I pass people by hours, hours and hours, people who were so far ahead of me earlier on. They're 50 k's in, they'd burnt themselves out, and you know, once you get over that yeah, red line, way, you can't that's recover. The way it works, you know, and then you can literally gain hours on people. Exactly. I mean, you've apart. seen it in like 100 mile yeah. races and in Ironman, Ironman races. I mean, I've never won a race because I've been at the front from the beginning. It's always been attrition. <laughs> yeah, it's about continuing to move. Just yeah. keep moving. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 it's it's a you know that. The hare never wins. The tortoise usually wins. The longer the race, the better the tortoise's chances are. Yeah. And from that, I, you know, dusted my hands. I was like, wow, I achieved my goals and I didn't even realize it. And I went to Texas and I was I was working for a capital defense office and working on a death row campaign. And during that time, you know, I've said it before that I, I thought that no work could ever be as tough as what I did um, during those three months. And so all of a sudden the idea started to come into my head what if I tried to become the first woman to do this? Mm-hmm. And I knew two other women were trying to do it that year. And so I was like, well, I can't try it next year. I'm going to have to try it this year. And I remember telling my boyfriend at the time, and he's just like, I'm like, I reckon we can do it together. What if we both, you know, not just be the first woman, but we can be the first couple <laughs> to run. <laughs> he's like, I didn't sign up for that. Yeah, he's like, I'm a, he's like, I'm a med student. If I'm going to sign up to do something so silly. Um and he's like, I don't think you're going to be able to pull this off. And it was obviously I had to get the funds. You know, I was a law right. student doing an internship at the time, a non-paid the first internship. First, you had to break up with him, right? Well, I didn't break. I stuck with him throughout that <laughs> thing. Or should I say, he stuck with me throughout yeah. that thing. And I think him telling me that I couldn't pull it off was just like, who can tell me I'm not going to pull this off if I work hard enough? Like. You know, I just ran 250 kilometers across a desert with an injured foot. Um, and so I just worked so hard trying to find the funding to do that race. You know, I I never put it out to the world that I was anything other than I was. I said, I'm just this, you know, um, I'm just this young Australian woman trying to do, being an ordinary person trying to do something extraordinary. But my first call was to Jennifer Steinman, the filmmaker. And I said to her, I saw that you were filming a couple of people during this race. I did all four do you think you might film me hmm. and she's like yes I have no woman yet I would be very interested in uh, that so and that was my cat together that's cool yeah and that's how it kind of developed well I think you know you're sort of presenting yourself in this semi self-deprecating manner of like being this every you know this average person but what I'm hearing like the theme that's emerging from the story is this boldness. Like there's a certain audaciousness, you know, it's not an average person that's that, that makes the leap from, you know, the almost I didn't finish marathon to the, the desert marathon and then making the leap to, I'm going to do all four and be the, you know, try to be the first woman. Like mm-hmm. that's not a, you know, methodical organic growth curve. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're, you're just, le- you're, you have this, like there's a, a sensibility to like, 
see the possible or see the see the possibility in the impossible and 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 take that leap of faith you know that i think maybe that's your maybe that's your gift like how do you think about that i mean i i think it's also believing that past experience even if it's limited shouldn't be a limiting factor in being able to tackle something big on the basis that you do the hard work to make up for that gap of experience Mm -hmm. So I might not have run an ultra marathon before, but I, here's my nerdy lawyer ways. I read everything that you could possibly read about ultra marathons and, and what would it take to fuel a body in a way that it could look after it. And, you know, maybe the injury was a blessing in disguise as well. And I, I still think to this day, I wouldn't have done all four if I had didn't have that injury. Right. If you had just had a perfectly right up the middle experience yeah. on that. Yeah, I wouldn't have done it. And and then China, I nearly pulled out. And China was hard. Like it was, it was so mountainous. And I kept thinking, you know, you start, I romanticized what Chile was like. And then I get to China and I'm like, oh, this is actually really hard. Like I forgot how hard it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first day was just hills after hills after hills. And it was, that was probably that and a moment in Sahara were the only times that I ever contemplated pulling out of mm-hmm. it. And But beyond that, I just... I was willing to be the last person walking across the finishing line. I was willing to do anything to get there. And I actually became a stronger athlete as, as the year progressed. I think there's, uh, there's beauty in, in naivete. Like naivete mm. can be underestimated because when you, you're not really clear on what you're getting yourself into, you know, you can embrace it in a way that somebody with more experience might be sort of cautioned off of, Mm. you know, I mean, with that comes a preparation and all of that, but like to just be like, why not? You know, like, Mm. yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And I have people write to me all the time going, Oh, I've never, never done a 10 K run. And I think I'm going to run across Australia or something. And, you know, obviously there's a risk mitigator, Sam going, Oh, prepare yourself and maybe build into it. And then I kind of think, no, I was a bit like that. And I'm, I should never crush someone's like, you know, naivety on, on the basis that they have enough realistic optimism and understanding that they need to prepare themselves and there are risks associated with jumping a lot of steps. Yeah. And I think that person will find out in due time whether yeah. that's really going to happen or not. I mean, exactly. most, there's a lot of people that make broad proclamations like that. Mm. And, you know, in a matter of months, they usually flame out. And, yeah. But the person who, you know, continues to persevere you know that's the flame you want to you want to fan yeah and i think that actually is my greatest strength um i think it's that i tend typically do what i say i'm going to do and i have an idea and for most people they seem like far-fetched fanciful ideas but if i put the idea out what i first require when i say a fanciful idea is i want to get a bubbling of excitement of myself, of other people that I um, respect their opinion of. Once there's that bubbling of excitement that takes me to about 110%, oh my God, I really want this, then the work that I do reflects that commitment to make that excitement a reality. And you you can't manufacture that, right? That's why you can't just make this decision now, oh, I'm going to do this other adventure. Mm, Like it takes time, right? And you'll know when it strikes you. Yeah, and it has to feel right. I mean, I sometimes say in ultras, you get caught out if you have impure reasons for being there. You'll get rooted out. Um, oh, yeah. Quick. Like the body's like, I'm not going to do this. Like, that's why if I ran across India just to run across it, I think I would have made two weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the Sahara and what yeah. happened there. I mean, I talked about it with, with Jennifer when she was on the podcast. And it, it, it certainly makes for, uh, 
you know, quite a, a gripping story in that documentary, but, you know, walk us through what happened there. Oh, um, you know, you said, what do you not want to talk about before? Yeah, I know. Well, that's, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I, but, and know. I don't really. I mean, it's in the film. Well, the so thing it's, is, it's funny in, in kind of prepping for, for today and, you know, doing my due diligence, mm. you know, sort of leveraging that lawyer background that I have, <laughs> I noticed that it doesn't come up that much. You know, yeah. Even though it's in the movie and it's talked about when you read about the movie and all the interviews that you do and it, it, it it's i mean you're certainly never raising it and it, it it often isn't even asked about yeah i mean i think in the early days it was asked about and i didn't want to talk about it i i remember i did my first okay i should probably we should probably say, explain what we're talking about yeah so um <laughs> Wow, I, I don't, you know, I'm a corporate speaker and this is in my corporate speaking, mm-hmm. but I don't talk about it, I show it. But if I was to explain it now in words. Um, and also we should just point out that we had to turn the air conditioning off yeah, because, because. I feel like I'm in the Sahara Desert It's like right 104 now. out here. We had to turn the AC off because it screws up the audio, but now it's sort of, we're having a Saharan experience. So you feel like here. I'm like yeah. listening and maybe you think we're I'm crying like up. sweating. You know, of we can course. turn it back on, but it's just like this hum on the audio. And every now and again, I but feel I'm like. But I'm thinking, I don't want her to be uncomfortable, but like. Fuck it. She ran across India. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like my legs are slipping. (laughs) Um, Okay. So on the first day of um, the run across the Sahara Desert, 250Ks, I am always typically really underprepared because I believe in a lot of recovery. So day one of that race, it just, I was the hurt locker. I, my backpack's always the heaviest and I suppose I have the most internal demons um, at the start of a run particularly a stage race and I was running with a group of friends and then they we went into a checkpoint and they wanted to take their shoes off and my whole approach is don't take your shoes off don't sit down just keep moving even if it means you have to walk for a bit just walk out of the aid station and I started walking out of the aid station slowly was shuffling and you know there was a, a sand dune and there was a there was a guy on the sand dune and I was as the movie goes, I was confused why there was a guy on the sand dune, um, but I just thought he must have been a part of the race. And I, I mean, wh- it's it's kind of the middle of nowhere, yeah, though, right? I, I mean, mean, there was an aid station nearby, but uh, now it's not like I you're know in a town. We we actually weren't far from a town, uh-huh. I, but you you don't think it because all you see is the sand. But like there are in like Egypt these kind of sand dune communities, right. and but. You, you do get into the bubble of the race. You think you're the only thing out there, that the race is the only thing that exists in your mind. And I kind of got to that sand dune and he had his hand out like he wanted to give a, a high five. And so I kind of grabbed his hand and, you know, he, he obviously had um, impure motivations and, you know, attempted to sexually assault me in that moment. Um, all I can say is, like, I'm so lucky that, lycra is so tight and i was hot from sahara because it it actually helped me out in like being a bit of a barrier from him being able to go a bit further and i was also very lucky that there was a guy on a motorbike that was riding by and scared him away back into Mm. the bush and so i backed away from him and you know you think about it like i was frozen i was frozen in that moment because i was so i did not expect like now when i do my expeditions i think about this stuff and I'm prepared for it, so I think about how my whistle. You, I mean, of course you didn't expect yeah. it. Like, how could can you imagine? You're in the middle of running an ultra, and you you get 
yanked and, and, yeah. and put in this position where you're being sexually assaulted? I mean, who, in the, who nobody would. But now I say women, be prepared. Be prepared that there are, when you run on the trails, you have to realize that there can be anyone on the trails. And there's been a lot of incidences around the globe where a woman has gone for a run on a trail and has she's been in somewhat assaulted by someone there. And it is a crappy thing to acknowledge and particularly for something that we love to do. But that's why there's whistles mm-hmm. on backpacks. That's why, you know, we should carry our yeah. mobile phones even if we want to be disconnected from technology. You have to think of, um, you know, I hate to think of worst case scenario because I'm like the eternal optimist, but I've, it's definitely made me more cautious. And um, it took me 45 minutes to find um, someone after that happened. I mean, what's going through your mind in that 45-minute period? I, I can't even yeah. imagine that you were able to even move forward. I don't think I moved. But I, I had lost my voice. Like I... I could not even speak and I was going forward and um, there were these checkpoint markers and the wind kept hitting the checkpoint markers and so they kept flapping and I kept thinking someone was behind me. And so every couple of like, you know, minutes I would like dart around and look behind me thinking someone was there. I mean, were you moving or were you just sitting, laying no, down? No, no, I was like moving forward. I was right. going through wow. the course, trying to get to the next aid station. When in reality I could have stopped, waited for the guys to right. come up behind me. And I, that would have happened much quicker. But my mind said, like, safety is forward. I've got to go forward. Yeah. I don't want to stick where I am. The person that I found, or that found me, was Jen Steinman, the filmmaker. Mm. And she took one look at me, knew something had happened, and put her camera on um, in the car, which must have been, like, we've talked about it since then. That's a big, like, filmmaker moment. I'm here for my friend now. I'm not going to film this moment. Right. So she kind of yeah, carried. She's there. I mean, this is the most dramatic thing that perhaps is going to happen in the documentary, yep. and she has an opportunity to document the whole thing. And she put it down, mm. and I still was quite composed because I was like, you know, got to get to safety. I was like, in like, you know, um, I was very, I was composed until I got to safety, and then I just, I hadn't drunk water in forty-five minutes. I'm in the Sahara Desert. I was dehydrated. I was fatigued. I was emotional, and. I took like a bit of a break and I had seven Ks left to go. And when I went to do the seven Ks, I just like collapsed on the ground. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why am I running? Why right, am I like, pushing? I'm like, going to finish a race after like, I've just been like, it just seems so meaningless. It seems so meaningless. And it was all going through my head. Like, what is what is this about? And like, what's this country? And so I pulled out of the race. Um, they were like, you know, you can pull out of today and we'll just give you an average time and we'll let you continue tomorrow. Which... Um, in some ways, sometimes when you're racing, you want someone to give you an easy option as well. Like, we'll still let you be in the race, but you right. don't have to do that 7K. So I, I got into my tent. Um, people kept coming past thinking that I was the first woman for the day because no other woman was back. And they're like, hey, congratulations, awesome. And I'm sitting there going, I don't want to tell them what happened. I also don't want to lead them to think that I won. And so I just, again, like... I didn't know what to say. And then after about 20, 30 minutes, I was like, nah, I've got to go back out there. Like I have to go to that exact spot where I finish and I have to finish this because if I don't, this moment is going to define my racing experience, not someone else is going to define my racing experience when I did this for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I went back out there and I I charged through that 7K, um, probably the hardest I'd run 7K in the entire You get a thing. ride back to exactly where yeah. you stopped. Yeah, mm-hmm. got a ride back and they were just like, okay. And it was very unceremonious. It was like, okay, Sam, go. And they put the stopwatch on right. and I went. 
And so I'm now running in the heat of the day with all the people who are at the back of the field thinking, what is going on? Why is Sam running at the back of the field? I haven't seen her all day. Right. And I just didn't speak to anyone. I just kind of like put my, I used my little, you know, the little bit of battery I had in my iPod that I was saving for the long stage on day five. And I'm like, I need to put this on right now. And I just like ran and I, I processed what happened as much as one can process in a short period of time. And I just thought, no, like, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to make this, this race is about me and I'm not going to let someone that I'll never see again, like be the defining moment for this. It was your character defining moment. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody would have besmirched you to just be like, no, I'm not finishing. You know, there's no point in that. It is the extremely rare person that would have made the move that you made. And I think it speaks to what you said earlier. Like if, if you have a talent, it's this, you know, commitment to following through on what you say you're going to do, like this firm constitution. And I think if anything, that is obviously, you know, this is your secret power, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't know if it, what kind of compartmentalization was required to be Mm -hmm. able to kind of mentally approach that. But the fact that you made that decision and followed through on that, I mean, that's, that's a, just, it's an unbelievably remarkable thing. Yeah. My grandma had died a week before that race and I had been, my parents had been overseas, so they weren't there when she died. And I spoke at her eulogy and I was there with her at the end. And I just remember thinking like right now she's watching over me and she wants me to finish this. And I definitely felt her spirit with me for the rest of that race and to the credit of my people who who I shared a tent with who most of them I had never met before Mm -hmm. I don't know if they had a secret conversation and made a strategy but one of them was with me for the rest of the race one they took turns but there was someone in that tent with me every moment for the rest Mm -hmm. of the race and these are guys that whether they went slower at times or faster at times to kind of stick with me they definitely made it possible um and I look back at that and, you know, you, you wonder why I focus on access to education. Um, I think my capacity or my fortune to be educated in the way that I am gives me that ability to have perspective and to think to the long term and to analyze a situation and to get myself out of a situation that could have placed me in the cycle of being the victim. Yeah, that's what I was what I was sitting here thinking about. Mm-hmm. Like that would be the typical route. Like you're the victim. Yeah. You can do the speaking circuit and talk about, you know, female empowerment and women's rights, but you know, really allowing that to sort of control the narrative and then maybe 5 years later you go back to the spot where it happened and you run that 7 kilometers mm-hmm. um, as a part of that healing process, but expediting the healing process by immediately going back there and running that is like taking this bold step to redress it as it's occurring mm. without any time for even reflection upon what had occurred. Yeah, and I think the reflection was done afterwards. And I just, I think we have to acknowledge that things out of our control happen to us all the time. And sometimes they can be horrible like that, or they can be 10 times more horrible, like what's happening to so many women in sub Saharan mm-hmm. Africa, where they might abuse on a daily basis and they don't even know that that's actually a bad thing. And there's certainly no way that they can get out of that. And so um, there's always degrees of perspective, but I look back at that and although it was horrible at the time, I feel it was my defining moment in that experience. I feel like I grew up and we can choose to look at something in a positive lens or a negative lens. And it's our choice how to 
respond to something. We are so much more defined by our response to something than the action of what happens to us in that moment. Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, and I don't know what they're putting in the water out there in Australia, <laughs> but the only thing worse that I can imagine than being sexually assaulted in the midst of a race is is having your body completely burned. So and Turia, your friend, yeah, Tur- yeah Turia, yeah. Um, who you know you probably know I had on the podcast as well. Your, your friend, you were in that race as well, right? Yeah, were I you was. a witness to that occurring? I was, oh gosh, Turia, she's like amazing. But I mean, the, the point being, like the thing about like, what are they putting in the water in Australia, meaning mm, like she things. has similar command over her story and how she talks about it, like is it's reminiscent of the way that you're sharing it in the sense that, you know, she's using it as a means to not only empower herself, but to empower others. So they're yeah, breeding was, strong character there <laughs> down under. Yeah, I was just ahead of Turia during that race, and I, mm. I saw the fire, um, and I ran through, and I remember going to the race director saying, no one should be allowed through here. We base, I was with another two guys at the time, and we had run for our lives pretty much to get away from the fire. We passed back that message, right? And it You're wasn't. Speaking of that, it's oh, getting sorry. super hot. In yeah, here. I'm like, I'm so I'm gonna take my clothes <laughs> Should we off. Should turn the AC back on? I don't know. We'll get through I it. I feel like Rich is trying to say, like, you need to be wearing less clothes no. in doing these podcasts. Um, she, um, they didn't pass that message back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was a pretty awful experience to be a part of, and you know, I, sure is amazing. Yeah, and you ended up um, <clears throat> doing, a, doing a race that raised funds for her and others, correct? And Kate, like, yeah. yeah, there was two girls who were, Turin and Kate Sanderson, who were the ones that were you know, significantly impacted by that fire. And so a year to the day that it happened, um, we hosted a fun run in Melbourne around the Tan, which you might have run around when you were there, Botanical Gardens. In uh, Melbourne, I was in Mel. No, I didn't because oh. I, like I said, I was only there a day. Like okay. I, I couldn't, I didn't even go for a run there. Yeah, I was literally in and out. Yeah, well, there's a just a right kind of in the, the heart. We of drove this. by it though. I, I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, so we did a two loop run and we raised some funds for the girls. Not as, I mean, the funds were whatever, but it was more just this community has your back. Yeah, and she amazing. came down for it and ran a loop. Wow. It was the most amazing thing. She walked it and then she kind of ran the last little bit. And I'll never forget, she still had all her like um, body um, protectant on. Right, right. And she was just, you know, her arms were straight. And Michael, her, her face part. looks like a ski mask, like with yeah. just the gauze all, all and around. And she, she ran it and Michael was next to her. And I just, my heart swelled with pride and of her strength. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Mm. All right. So you get through Sahara. I mean, I would imagine you had to battle some demons about just not doing the next one or was there no. a moment of thinking you're like... It was Antarctica. Yeah. My sponsor said if I got through each race, they would fund the next one. So I was like, uh-huh. oh, well, got through Sahara, take me to Antarctica. And at this point, where are you in the pecking order of, of women, like in terms of rankings? Uh, like, so, are you working your way up here? Yeah, like, are you so in the hunt? I'm, I'm fourth now. Like, I'm consistently And are women fourth. dropping out? Like, are they starting, is there some oh, attrition terms, So there was only two other women who were doing, the, trying All for four, it. Right? And I was always hours ahead so oh, okay. I, I, that kind of so it's like years to lose even despite all of this yeah, like and you can you're lose. in the driver's seat you can lose well, anything like, easily. Can happen. um but the more interesting thing for me like i didn't really care so much about the first woman thing like it d- didn't i feel like it was just it was fortunate timing that i decided to do it um i was a stronger athlete than the, the other two women thing uh, coming again. In again. <laughs> <laughs> but what was okay what was okay i'll try and 
inflate myself up. But what was exciting is that I really had learnt to run. So by the final race in Antarctica, I was racing against a girl who was in the first race. And she just did Atacama and Antarctica. And she was hours ahead of me in, um, in Atacama. Mm-hmm. And by this last race, we were battling. Like we were dueling it out for each other. And she's like, who are you? She's like, I remember looking at your pigtails in that first race. And um, I just, you wouldn't think having run 750 kilometers in those extreme environments would have taught me to run and to be stronger because most of the other people who were going for the Grand Slam got weaker. They got tired. You know, you have to go back home. You have to work. You have to cram in your life in a short period of time. But for me, it had, uh, maybe it's the inner resilience, mm-hmm. but I actually learned to become stronger. Well, you're so new to the sport too. Yeah. Right? I was like, oh, you're gaining every like day. on the job training. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you hire a coach or no, were you just trying to figure this out through whatever you could find online? And- figured it out myself. I mean, wow. most, of t- I have to be honest, I didn't do too much training in between. Um, didn't have the time. I had to do my law. I had to actually study right. to be a lawyer. Um, and there was only three weeks between Sahara and Antarctica. So you're just using that really to kind of recover yeah. and do some shorter runs. Yeah. And so the last one is... What was the last one? Was Antarctica the last yeah, one? Correct. All right. So when you complete that and you realize, like, hot damn, like you just won this. You're the first woman to ever do this, and the youngest. Yeah. And they, is it true that, like, at the time, no one acknowledged only, it. It wasn't. It wasn't a big thing. It wasn't like, even a thing. They, there was no category for How that. How many guys have had done it? Only it. two. There were only a couple, right? Well, Dean was one, right? And Paul Liebenberg. So kind of two professional. Paul was a, is a doctor, but you know, Dean is professional. So really, two professional male athletes had done that challenge beforehand. And this year, the year that I did it, thirteen people or eleven people were tackling it. Mm-hmm. And maybe and how many of them finished? Maybe eight. Uh, right. I think something like that. Eight and did finished. the other two women? Yeah, the, as well. The, the, and that's what was cool. Like so there was a lot of guys women in the first year. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Of course. I mean, women are quite good at just, even in pain. And one of the women was, you know, a a lot older. She was, you know, mid-50s maybe. And then Lucy, who was um, from the UK, she had like terrible knee pain and like had to hobble most of it. Um, But she got through it. There's a toughness about women who who tackle endurance races. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think women are tougher in the ultras than the guys. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I think it's true. But there must have been a point, you know, after you've, did this maybe when you got home where you're like i'm hot stuff man i just rocked that thing i wish i took more time to to think that way <laughs> yeah i didn't but, I, but yeah what i mean what i'm getting at really is like okay i'm like good at this like i could like make this more of a thing not just like something yeah. i do on the side as you know while i'm being a lawyer but like yeah. did when did you start to see the possibility that that you could perhaps pursue this, not necessarily as a professional running career, but like from a perspective of, of advocacy and like, you know, make this like your main thing. As a, To make it as my main thing, maybe four years later. Yeah. I think at the time like I was still, I'm doing this, I've got to finish my law degree. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'd when already you come ex- home, are your friends like, do they, did they get what you were doing? Um, Maybe two. I was. Nice. I, would, I would blog during it, so people uh-huh. were along for the journey. And you know, when you're blogging along these things, you're quite emotional and you're raw with your writing. And you know, I'm sure there's plenty of spelling mistakes in there as well because you're writing on this small little keyboard in yeah, the desert. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't think people truly understand, and, and that's okay. That's something you have to come to grips with. That of course, people aren't going to understand what that journey was like, and um, 
at the beginning, that's hard to kind of re-adapt yourself back to that world. I mean, I've been traveling around the globe. I've been finishing my law degree in between. Like I, I had mastered more in that year mm-hmm. um, than I probably had in the 10 years prior to it. Um, but that's something that you can't put that on other people. You have to kind of take yeah, yeah, that yeah. yourself. And when the movie came out, how was that like sort of reliving that experience on the big screen yeah. in an auditorium with other people? It was years later. It was maybe yeah. two years later, two, three years later. And it was in Edinburgh. So Jen didn't let me see the film before it came out. So I was going in there petrified about how this scene would play out in Sahara. You know, I was like, I hope no one thinks of me as a victim. You know, I certainly didn't see of myself as that. And I remember watching it and a woman came up to me afterwards and she kind of spoke to me and she kind of lingered for a little bit. And and then a couple of days later, she wrote to me on Facebook and said, you know, I was the girl that came up to you. I want to let you know that a couple of years ago, um, someone that I knew broke into my home, beat me up and raped me. And she said afterwards, she didn't get the support that she felt that she needed. And she had really been hard on herself and she'd been playing the victim game. And she said that after seeing the film, she realized that she was the only person who could take control of her situation. And so she had joined a gym and over that next year she had been like signed up for like Tough Mudder events and she Uh would send me photos of when she would like complete the race. And I remember thinking if that is the only positive of that situation coming, it's worth it. That's beautiful. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, you've since gone on to, I mean, we can't go through like every crazy race and adventure <laughs> that you've done but you know there's you ran across south africa and like you know what else you, you did you know you did what else i wrote them all down but you ran across you had a big like run in the desert simpson desert yeah. in australia like you, you know it's not just like you're doing this you know all the time right yeah i mean i really love the self-devised expeditions where you can create the parameters um Maybe that's my control freak nature coming through, but I like the I like creation. Um, I like taking the limits to where I want to see them and push them. Mm-hmm. I, I want to eat when I want to eat. I want to you know I want to go for as far as I want to go, and um, I want to do it for why I want to do it. And sometimes when you do a race, you don't have control of that kind of stuff. Um, so I have control in the creation, and then I have to learn to to lose control when I actually do it. And I think mm-hmm. that's something really poetic about you know, playing into what you naturally are inclined to do and then having to go to the opposite level of it. Yeah, 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 for sure. How do you think of the balance between mental and physical in terms of, you know, the strengths and requirements mm-hmm. to tackle these types of events? Uh, I definitely think mental is a lot stronger. You know, I've seen people who are physically very capable and pull out of these races the second day. And the worst thing about these races is you have to – Typically, you have to stay with the race because you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert. So you actually have to watch people complete the race that you dreamed about doing. And time and time again, I would see people and I just would see their like their head in their hands thinking, why did I pull out at that point? Like, mm-hmm. could I have... The thing is, there's so many things you can do before pull out. You yeah. can slow down. You can take on more nutrition. You can wait for someone to come and like bounce off their camaraderie. Um, you can sit down for a moment, but somehow all those alternatives become like we don't think of them when we're feeling in that crux of like discomfort and we're on the edge. We think our only solution is to completely take ourselves away from it. Yeah. Uh, 
I can't actually remember what your question was, but well, it has uh, to do with the mental game. Yeah, so right? I think and, I think and, mental. and the barriers that that we erect, I think that prevent us mm. from really connecting with our capabilities. Like, you know, David Goggins says mm. it all the time. Like, he's got his forty percent rule. You know, his famous forty percent rule. Like, yeah. we're you know, when we think we're done, we've only tapped into about forty percent of what we're truly capable yeah. of. Yeah, and, and I don't. And have you a meet that? Yet. Like, like, how do you? Is that? Do you agree with that? Is that? Do you think of it differently? I don't have a formula for it. Um, but for me, I it's not forty-one or yeah, forty-one. I'll be like David. Mine's forty-three point five percent. I I definitely think mental plays a massive role in the creation of self-belief that you can do something like that, and then the self-belief then requires you to have the the commitment to do the training. So I think it starts with the mental side, but then that also empowers the physicality as well. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to really believe in yourself. You have to believe it's possible. Um, and you have to believe in your ability to do the hard work behind it. Have you had any of these kind of spiritual experiences that you hear about? Like Dean talks about, you know, sort of having his visions when he becomes delirious. And, you know, what is your what is your kind of like ethereal connection to these endeavors? Oh, I don't know if I... In the expeditions, you have a couple of them. Um, in India, I couldn't have been running in a more spiritual place. And, you know, I, I talked about spirituality a lot with my crew whilst I was out there because some of my crew were avid um, yogis mm-hmm. and felt the departure of being able to practice yoga in a, in a studio meant that they were void of their spirituality. And I said, spirituality isn't something, in my opinion, spirituality isn't something that you get in a room. It's something that's inside you that you can bring into other parts of your life. And spirituality for me is to experience or to be part of what the majority of the population truly live their life like. Uh And the way the majority of Indians live, daily survival, moment by moment, not thinking ahead, to try and like get into that frame mind takes me to my closest place of spirituality without a doubt Mm -hmm. and it's something that we're not used to in like it's very hard to get to that but these people live it by not because of choice and what does that spirituality look like for you like how do you how do you articulate that Uh, i think it's the it's when i actually stop fretting about what's to come and dwelling on what's past Mm -hmm. when i'm in the moment being in the moment now right I think that's how you you get through these ultras. Mm. Ultimately, you know, the more you can anchor yourself in the present, that like fear of the future and reflection on how hard it's been or whatever difficulties you've had evaporates and allows you to just propel forward. Mm. But I, and as I think I said earlier on, but I don't. I I'm very careful when I choose to take myself there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm not someone that just wants to beat myself into like discomfort all the time to constantly see what I'm capable of. Like uh, I do back myself now. I know that I'm capable of going there, um, but I don't always need to go there. And I think that's something I've learned with maturity and getting a bit older. So then what is your relationship with balance? The balance is that I have to really believe in why I'm doing it to take myself there. And that, you know, my relationship with... Um, myself and my family and my partner and like my health that and the pursuit of pushing the boundaries need to 
sometimes be moderately aligned Mm -hmm. and there'll be times when I push the boundaries of out of the comfort zone a lot so the last three years I've been doing that a lot with India and now I need to kind of like go back into like it has to swing it has to swing back so I can go back there and do it in the right way for the right reasons and with the right outcomes Mm -hmm. so now I'm kind of like going yeah you couldn't just launch right into the next thing yeah which everyone goes what's next and I'm like for the first time in my life I feel comfortable going like I, for a moment, I tried to kind of say a few things because I've got ideas. Of course, I have ideas, but I'm like, no, there's no what's next. I'm just, I'm going to do little, I'm doing little micro adventures. Um, I'm finishing my book, which comes out next year. Oh, nice. um, we're going to make a document. We just got the funding for the Run India documentary. Well, I know that you made these amazing, there are these amazing videos mm. on Vimeo yeah. that you can find on your on your website. I, I believe those are those were the ones produced by world vision right those ones were produced by a guy called steve young Uh um who was hired by world vision um kind of at my request as the right person to come out on this expedition but there'll be a proper documentary proper documentary made by that guy who filmed that Uh, kind of content that's very cool and that was something that was hanging over me i'm like we have so much incredible content in the can that shows these stories of these people that we met and what we went through um, it almost wouldn't be doing justice to the project to not be able to showcase that stuff. Yeah, beautiful. So yeah. Do you have, is there an anticipated sort of release date for that? Yeah, or is December. It It'll be oh, out December. by December, oh, yeah. Wow. So wow. hopefully we will um, can, can take it into a couple of the film festivals. Uh-huh. Um, is Jennifer then sort of taking a look at the footage? Is she, she, oh, she's my, communication like, with her? I mean, Jennifer's one of my best friends now. Uh-huh. You know, oh, I, cool. I came to her wedding um, in Berkeley last year uh-huh. um and i i'm gonna go and visit her in san francisco at the end of this trip so she's definitely my soul sister and yeah. has looked over every content that i've ever kind of put out and That's she's cool. a very good guiding um i suppose figure for me on right. that stuff well we got to land this plane but uh i think the final thing i kind of want to explore with you is how you think about your role as a um you know as this sort of inspirational figure or role model for female empowerment you know and this is a theme that kind of comes up from time to time on the podcast and i kind of this, my mantra or the thing i always say is like there are amazing women doing amazing things all over the place we don't do a very good job of shining a spotlight on them and you know in america the spotlight is keenly on the kardashians and, and kind of all kinds of you know figures that as a father of two young daughters i would prefer my daughters don't model themselves Mm -hmm. after and so i'm always so happy uh to be able to share the message of somebody who i think is a healthy role model and inspiring figure who is really empowering you know women and young women in particular all over the world with your strength and your grace and and your accomplishments so how do you like think about how you carry that I struggle with the word inspiration. Um, I struggle with the word inspiration. In the when you sense, get an email and somebody says, you're such an inspiration, how does that make you feel? Um, like, what is your emotional reaction to that? I used to cringe because I, maybe I, I think the places, the people I'm inspired by are the ones that just do what they really believe in for the intention of doing the thing that they really believe in, like wholeheartedly. And then it's my choice to feel inspired by them, not because they've said that they're inspiring, but because they're doing something they really believe. Mm-hmm. And so if someone chooses to say, oh, I'm really inspired by your talk or what you did, like that's that's them, like that's how they choose to feel and that's awesome. But I'm, I guess I don't 
go about my business and I don't run across India with the objective of being inspiring. It's I'm doing this thing because I really believe it can make a tangible difference through a different type of way. And it's I think it's soft. That run across India, I think, was a really great example of soft diplomacy, which I think can be really effective. Um, and if someone chooses to feel a certain way about it, I mean, yeah, of course. But it's you're aware that that you know that this is you know that this sort of sense about yourself is being cultivated. I mean, you go and you give talks at corporations and you know probably at schools and all kinds of places, right? So when you're delivering that message, like, how are you? You know, what is it? What is the core idea that you're trying to communicate? Well, my core thing is to just show that I am really a normal person in the sense that I'm relatable, that anyone could make the choices that I've chosen to make and go down this path. It just comes from choice. And if I can open up people's minds to how they can pursue their choices, well, that excites me, particularly when it comes into the way of positively impacting the lives of other people. Mm -hmm. And how do you look at the landscape of, you know, sort of female empowerment and, you know, the figures that are, you know, out there and and kind of what they speak to? That was a poorly articulated question, but you uh, get what I'm saying, right? That's because we're pretty much stripping right now. I have a, I've got this friend, uh, Neil Strauss, and he's a writer and he, he has a podcast that he does, um, with, uh, Gabrielle Reese and they do it in a sauna and it's called the truth barrel because when you're that hot and you spend that much time in there it's like truth serum and you end up telling the truth and I feel like this podcast has sort of morphed into the truth barrel so oh I mean you, you are gonna have to put <laughs> we're it gonna, we're almost done you're gonna have to put a towel on the seat know, afterwards <laughs> so um you're going to have to hit me with that question one more time because I sweated uh, out the, I remember the thought. I, all I remember is that I asked it very poorly, but it had to do with oh. um, like how you think about this landscape of female empowerment, oh. like what you're, uh, you, you know, like who are the people that you mm. look to and like how do you think about how, um, you know, culture messages young women and what can be changed about that, I guess is a way of putting it. In my late teens and early 20s, I used to say I was someone that got on better with guys and... You know, I I found the company of other women um, not as fulfilling. And I've now done like a a 180 on that. And I am the biggest advocate for associating yourself with kick-ass women who have strengths where you have weaknesses, where the focus is on elevating each other, even if you're in competitive fields. And so I feel like I have flourished as an individual ever since I've chosen to do that, ever since I've seen the pie being a whole lot bigger. And I don't think that if a woman is successful in this slice of pie, that she's taken my slice of pie. In Mm. fact, she's got that piece of pie because she created it. And so I have a really incredible group of women um, that I associate with often in the entrepreneurial space who are writers, speakers, I guess, thought leaders in their own way. And they are the people that I typically go to when I have this harebrained idea um, that I want to kind of develop um and yeah that's and jennifer's one of them um and i just think you have to know your core and you know recently i did something where i forgot that that's the norm that's not the norm and i think i've created that over the years because that's what makes me be the best version of myself but you know i recently did a you know a project where i wasn't around that and i realized how much i need that in my day-to-day life so my message to young women is to find your female tribe Mm -hmm. and don't be 
afraid of them being successful. In fact, elevate them with everything that you have to be successful because that is going to be the true measure of how you gain success too. That's very similar to Robin Arzon's message. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool. I love that girl. I know. And you said before the podcast, <laughs> you went to her class. And yeah. I was like, did you tell her who you were? And no. she's like, she probably didn't, she didn't even know. So, yo, Robin, she listens. She's going to listen to this. So. <laughs> she's my girl crush. Next time, next time, she's everybody's girl crush. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. And, you know, maybe as a final thought, um, just for somebody who's feeling stuck in their life, who needs a little inspiration or a kick in the pants or, or just that, like, you know, like sort of little kernel of wisdom to help catalyze, you know, perhaps a, a, a move off the couch and in a better trajectory. I mean, the no outdoors is no the, the outdoors is the environment where I find um, not just mindfulness and like um, the ability for me to remove judgment away from myself, but the place where I can be most creative. And so whether that's the physicality of being outdoors, but I don't get that same feeling of being in a gym. So, Right. And not everyone who listens to your podcast is someone who is active, but I just say get outside, like be outside, be in nature, get off the roads where there's like this increased level of silence, put your phone on silent if it's with you and just like stop being so hard on yourself and start creating the things that make the most sense to you. It's a beautiful way to end it, I think. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. How do you feel? Other than being super Spat hot. No. Literally, my glasses are fogging up right now. <laughs> so I actually think it's perfect that we taped this thing. <laughs> no, it was really great. Thank you yeah. so much. It was beautiful to spend a couple hours with you. I really appreciate your message. You are a true inspiration, and I wish you nothing but um, positive good vibes and luck. And keep uh, doing what you're doing. I look forward to seeing what you do next, but there's no time clock on that. Yep. Thank Take you. Take your time, right? Enjoy yeah. California. And uh, when you finish that book, will you come back and tell me about it? I will. I will. Thank you. It's been an absolute privilege. I have hounded you. And thank you for uh, accepting the hounding. No, you didn't hound me at all. Are you (laughs) kidding? Like, I'm super happy to be able to do this. It's fantastic. So awesome. Uh, You can find Samantha online pretty easily. You can Google her and like a billion articles come up. Or you can just go to SamanthaGash.com, at SamanthaGash on Twitter, Instagram, all those kind of places, right? Is there one place in particular where you like to interact with people? or people I think, can yeah I think Instagram is Instagram. where I'm like most <clears throat> mm-hmm. it's a most um, present reflection of what I'm doing and probably the easiest way of getting in touch with me right and do you have speaking engagements coming up I do I I have a very um, I suppose full um, schedule when I get back and but nothing I'm, in the US while no you're but my book is actually published in the US so I'll be doing mm. a book tour next year throughout the US oh, cool. so we'll, who's, the, who's the publisher on that Macmillan oh nice yeah awesome. in New York Excellent. Well, you're then you're definitely you have to come back. Yes, I'd love awesome. to. Awesome. Well, I I plan on being in Australia probably. For yeah, what I I hope to, as we talked about before, but I will anyway, host you. <laughs> absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Peace, flights. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. Right on. We did it. How do you guys feel? Was it good? Was it awesome? I thought it was pretty cool. I thought she was great. Uh, why don't you give her a shout out? on the internet and let her know what you thought. She's easy to find, just Samantha Gash everywhere you look, at Samantha Gash on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram, uh, and share a few thoughts about what you thought about the conversation. Again, if you want to check out the meal planner, I encourage you to do so. Go to meals.richroll.com or click on meal planner on uh, the top menu on my website, richroll.com. If you would like to support this show and my work, there's a couple of ways to do it. Share it with your friends on social media. Leave that review on iTunes. 
make sure you hit that subscribe button on iTunes as well. And we have a Patreon set up uh, for those of you who feel inclined to support my work financially. And big gratitude to everybody who has taken that leap. I really, really appreciate that. There's a, a button, a banner ad for that on every episode page. Um, of the podcast on my site at richroll.com. If you would like to receive a free weekly short email from me, I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call. And it's basically a list of five or six cool things that I came across over the course of the week. Generally, a couple articles, a documentary, a video, a product, a book I'm reading, things I've enjoyed, things that have inspired me or that I found useful. Uh, it's no spam. There's no affiliate links. I'm not trying to make any money off it. Just uh, good stuff. So if that resonates with you, you can sign up by uh, typing in your email address and any of those email capture windows on my website. Um, while you're on my site, you can check out our shop. We got signed copies of Finding Ultra and the Plant Power Way and this Jesus Nuts. We got t-shirts, we got sticker packs, all kinds of cool merch and swag for your plant-powered lifestyle. Uh, if you were impacted by my podcast, my recent podcast with Scott Harrison of Charity Water, uh, this is a call to action to put that inspiration into action. I made the call uh, to enlist this community, the RRP community, to contribute to the spring, which is their monthly subscription service in which 100% of all funds donated go towards uh, providing clean water for people that need it most. And you guys answered the call. As of today, we have uh, amassed enough contributions to account for five wells this year. My company is contributing one well per year, and you guys have contributed to four, so that's amazing. But I'd really like to make it 10. I really would, and I think that's doable. I think we can do that. Uh, most of you guys have an extra 20 or 30 bucks lying around, and I can't tell you how good it feels to... Uh, give that over on a monthly basis to a cause that is really making a gigantic difference. The degree of payoff for the amount of money that you need to contribute is really just massive. And I was really inspired by Scott and the mission of Charity Water. And so I've really kind of made this my cause. So please, uh, why don't you learn more about all of this by going to cwtr.org forward slash ritual spring and consider making a donation to the spring. That's CWTR org forward slash ritual spring. I want to thank today's sponsors, 22 Days Nutrition, the 100% plant-based, 100% USDA certified organic nutrition products and meal delivery platform designed to meet the needs of your healthy, active life. For 10% off all products, including meal delivery and free shipping, visit 22daysnutrition.com forward slash ritual and use the promo code ritual at checkout. And also my friends at MeUndies, the world's most comfortable underwear, Visit MeUndies.com forward slash roll to get free shipping in the U.S. and Canada and 20% off your first pair. Big love to everybody who helped put on the show this week. Lots of people behind the scenes working hard. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production and help with the show notes and configuring the website. Sean Patterson for help on the graphics, all the tech stuff that he does that I share on Instagram and on social media. That's Sean. He does amazing work. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. I am recording this podcast well in advance of it going out because I'm going to Sweden to compete in this crazy Otilla race. So I'm trying to front load all my work. Uh, I'm probably going to be off radar a little bit, but uh, hoping that you are wishing me well and I will communicate with you guys again soon. Until then, have a fantastic week and uh, much love for the support. Peace. Plants. <laughs>